Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. We're back with our uh, college football sprint. Uh, with Zach Smith. Zach, did you have a good Thanksgiving weekend? Yeah, man, it was great. Just hung out with the fam, ate good food, can't complain. <laughs> so weird not having a Michigan game to to watch. Uh, so weird. Not having any game to watch. Yeah, not any game worth watching to watch. Right. Really. <laughs> it was just an awful weekend of college football, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was just bad. It was bad. I mean, the North Carolina game was all right, and the Texas-Iowa State game was competitive, but I don't think. Outside of that, it was just terrible, terrible football yeah. to watch. No, no. So let's 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 actually talk about the reason why there wasn't a game uh, on Saturday, which you know it's anytime controversy happens around anything related to Ohio State football, you get a lot of voices, a lot of opinions, um, a lot of unnecessary voices, and a lot of unnecessary opinions as well. So there's a lot to filter through. But essentially what happened here was there was an outbreak within the team. Um, players, multiple players got it. Support staff, including Coach Ryan Day, had contracted COVID. And so in an abundance of caution, what I'm understanding from what I'm seeing is that they reached the threshold by which, which was like the 5% or 7% of the team and staff where they could cancel the game, but they didn't necessarily have to. But I think, you know, Gene Smith and and Ryan Day and everybody else, Dr. Borchers, made the decision that in an abundance of caution, the best thing to do was to walk away from this game and try to make sure that we were able to play the final two games of the season. Um, With that said, there's a lot of people who think that Ohio State should have played this game. Um, And then there's also controversy around kind of how many days someone who gets COVID has to sit out with Ohio, with the Big Ten kind of having a 21-day period, um, which is probably the biggest point of contention that I think is valid um, in this whole thing is the 21-day period. But, you know, let's just, let's just get into and talk about this from a 360, 360 perspective, guys. Well, I, I, here's my biggest thing. First of all, uh, Ohio State made a smart decision if they could control everything, right? If they could control everything, pause this so that they can still play six games, still make the Big Ten championship. That that was their their goal. Here's the problem. They don't control everything. We saw it with Maryland before, and Michigan's already trying to duck the smoke that Ohio State has coming their way, announcing COVID right now. So what happens is Ohio State, in my opinion, made a grave mistake in canceling this game. You saw Minnesota go play Purdue with 20 20 people out. I mean, it's possible, and what I don't get is, and it's it, it'll be good conversation, is how is it any more likely to spread the virus if you travel to Illinois? I, I can't I can't fathom it. Like these kids, instead of going to Illinois, they got sent back to their apartments and dorms, and you know they went to Chipotle to pick up to go food. They went to McDonald's to go to the drive through. Why is it more likely to get COVID if you travel on a plane with only the people that you've been with all the time? And go to a hotel, eat meals, and play a game. Like, what's the difference? Just more people, I guess, you come in contact with? The virus can live on this table, on V's hat, on Partha's headphones. Like, it can live anywhere. I don't don't understand why playing that game would have caused more outbreak. I can't can't understand it. 
I think I think the only counter to that would be if they knew that there was a a, a pretty big exposure here and that and that there were going to potentially be more positive tests that came through down the line like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, leading into the game because they didn't know just what the level of exposure was. That's my the only counter that I would give to that. And I do think the logic like you said of okay, if this thing is spreading and we have a potential outbreak, if if we're confident that we can contain it by separating everyone now and contain it at this 5% level, we're in a better position than if we go and play Illinois and we come back after the Illinois game and we have 20 new positive tests. I guess that's that's the only thing because it, I, I agree with you that this is a very challenging decision, but kind of what I have an issue with is like, the level of outrage here because look, everybody wants Ohio state university wants to play Ohio state to go to the big 10 championship because it makes them money. Ryan day and the players want to play. So once this decision was made and it was made amongst all of the different vested interests, I do think it's the responsibility just like in, I don't even like to compare this to a time of war, but if you are a member of the Ohio state community to kind of support the decision, as much as you can. Now we can debate the big 10 rules and how that all works. But the fact that this was a cohesive decision made between the medical people, the administrative staff and the coaching staff, I do think it is our responsibility to support it. I don't know if you guys disagree with that. that I'll say to, to Zach's point, if you were going to just isolate the people who had tested positive, right? Yeah. Then why would all of the rest of the players and coaching staff not be able to do what they were already planning to do? Because the Zach's point, if we're planning on the theory that, you know, playing college football doesn't cause COVID, but exposure outside of that does, then playing Illinois shouldn't actually make anyone on the team more likely to catch it. And so if you just isolated the people who are sick, you should still be able to go and get that win. That's not that's not going to be a hard win for uh, the team to get even without Ryan Day, right? So I think there's inconsistency in terms of uh, enforcing a rule that affects a whole bunch of people that really, you know, if you exclude the population that's sick, these people would have already done exactly, you know, what the plan was in the case that those people had tested healthy, right? The only question to your point, V, is is there a much broader thing across the team that a whole bunch of other people are sick and they just don't want to test all of them because yeah. they don't want to, you know, lose the next game as well. And also the 21 day period, right? Like right. if if a whole bunch of other guys like that aren't testing positive now come up positive and they have to have to disclose that, what if Justin Fields is sick? What if you know, what if you know significant players test positive now they're not able to play in the next two games. So that's another thing that I think probably was considered in in their thinking. I don't know. And I also don't fully, I don't think we fully understand how the incubation period of this thing works from exposure to someone that's sick to when you actually test positive. Um, yeah. This well. whole situation has shown the inconsistencies we see across how we in, even think about or enforce rules, right? Like this decision to, to all of our points is clearly a strategic one based on how the rest of the season looks and trying to be conservative early and not let anyone else get sick. But, you know, it's it's weird because the premise of going back to playing sports is that 
we should be able to play the sports and keep the players safe, right? So yeah. when when the disease itself and the protocols around it become a point of strategy for teams that try and edge out on top, it gets to be kind of a weird situation. Yeah, and th- and that was the danger. And Zach, you know, you called this out. We talked about this at the beginning of just how much strategy is involved and how much people are willing to risk um, to get a win or not take a loss because every loss matters in college football and every win matters. So the issue really at large here is that I don't think that Ohio state or any school in the big 10 should pay a price for being safe. Right. And, and they should be able to, it should be a fluid situation. Like, this 21 day period should be revisited because that's not the NFL. No other organization has that, that stringent of a guideline where you have to sit. But then the counter to that is if you're Wisconsin and you had to already do that and miss three games now that it's Ohio state, why would you not cry foul if they change the rule for Ohio state? Well, that's, that's, that's the reality of the issue, right? This is, this just comes down to egos and people that just don't want to admit they were wrong about anything. I mean, 21 days is the most outrageous thing. There's not a, you couldn't find a medical professional in the world that would mandate 21 days, except for Dr. Borchers. It's amazing. Like this guy's like the most paranoid safe doctor that ever lived. Like the CDC now says 10 days, not even 14 anymore. And this guy's like, Nope, we're going three months. Sorry. Like it's just bizarre. But to your point, I think to the strategy of it, you look at, all right, Ohio state doesn't control their own destiny, right? The big 10 presidents and commissioner put, put everyone in a bad spot, the way they handled the launch of the season. And then the no, no launch. Yeah, that launch. Was big, yeah, it was a train wreck. And the college football playoff committee already has made it clear. They put Clemson over Ohio state. They've made yeah. it clear. If you don't play yeah. enough games, you're out. I don't care if you win them all. Yeah. And that's that's that was created by the Big Ten presidents, Dr. Borchers and Kevin Warren. It just was. And, and you look at a program like Michigan now, they control Ohio State's destiny. Yeah. Like Jim Harbaugh just lost to 0-5 Penn State. He is a, a complete train wreck. If he doesn't get fired at Michigan, he might be trying to salvage something to get the Lions job. The last thing in the world he wants to do is get 50 hung up on him by Ohio State. And yeah. no reason not to cancel. I mean, they already said, oh, we got one case. We're nervous. Sorry, no game. And then they ruin Ohio State's championship hopes. They ruin everything. And Jim Harbaugh gets to ride off in the sunset and go coach the Detroit Tigers or Lions or whatever they are. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in complete agreement that we need to hold the people that need to be held accountable. Right. One of the, the larger issues that I have, and this is exposing the farce that is college athletics fully, right? Because it's like, okay, you guys are all paid very large salaries and a lot of money is fed into these organizations to do what? To be run well. And, and what this is exposing is that they aren't run well and they only care. The only thing they're only, all they are is a middleman for the money because there should be better, better protocols in place. There should be better governance in place. There should be more proactive management and contingencies in place. But we're sh- what this thing is showing is just how grossly mismanaged and terrible the organization structure of the NCAA and amateur athletics is. Yeah, and NCAA, I mean, they, they've had that reputation for a while, too. So this isn't really a huge surprise, but it's just another in the string of disappointments of college sports. Yeah. There's yeah. no doubt. And, and I t- I, this is a, a topic that 
might be too deep for my listeners, but your listeners are probably would be really into it. <laughs> but um, it, it it just blows my mind the the industry of second or, or continued education, colleges, universities, how it's one of the few professions where you get tenured and and these presidents like they do things with no repercussion. It's like, yeah. oh, you're a shitty professor. No, I have shitty students. It's like, oh, okay, well that works. Keep keep yeah. making your money. Keep keep it moving. It's amazing because these university presidents are skating scot free after one of the biggest mishaps in the history of the conference, probably the most yeah. colossal mishap of the conference. And then Kevin Warren is taking a lot of blame, rightfully so, but he's also taking a lot of blame for a bunch of academic people that no one really cares if they do a good yeah. job or not. Yeah. And, and that's the point that I wanted to underline. It's very convenient to point out. And I think it's understandable. That's how people are going to react. It's all Kevin Warren's fault. But Kevin Warren is doing the job. He's kind of, putting he's taking he is the scapegoat essentially for a lot of things that were set in place before he even became president and he's everyone's kind of the mismanagement by the big 10 is just is just it's 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 mind-boggling that we're at this level and it's it will be truly unfortunate if if it does cost the conference you know what they care about most which is they lose a lot of money if Ohio State doesn't make it to the Big Ten Championship. They lose a lot of money if the Ohio State doesn't go to the college football playoff. And the reason they reactivated the season, they're going to act like it was because, because they uh, they wanted to give the kids a chance. But no, they wanted that money. And yeah. now that money's at risk. And yeah. They saw an opportunity with the antigen test or whatever coming out. And they were like, oh, quick, use that. Pretend that's why. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason they canceled, they didn't want the liability. So, yep. I mean, sometimes things need to fail this miserably for us to actually change them. So I hope, you know, hopefully things do get better out of the flames and the Phoenix rises uh, out of the ashes of, of, of 2020. But, you know, I think we've, we've hit this topic. Is there anything else on it that you guys wanted to talk about? No, man. No, I'm ready to I'm ready to move this thing forward. Talk about Oregon and Oregon State here. That was a surprise. Shocking. Yeah. Um, it, it's just the state of the West Coast is really what it is. I mean, it's you could say the Pac-12, but it's it's everyone out there. Like you go that yeah. far west and it's like that's that's the brand of football. It's the worst power five conference. Uh, the Big 12, you could have an argument, but I think Oklahoma, Texas, Iowa State would mop the floor with pretty much everyone in the Pac-12, except for maybe Oregon. But yeah, that was that was shocking. And Oregon State has done a decent job in recruiting and and landed a couple transfers, one kid that I recruited and and uh so it, I was shocked. I mean, I, I thought Oregon had a chance to be kind of one of those teams that people talked about that maybe the postponement of the season is why they didn't make it. But I thought they had a shot and clearly not. <laughs> yeah, I want to I dig deeper there in, yeah. in terms of the Pac-12 part that you live out on the West Coast in California. You know how much talent well, is out there. I'll say football's <laughs> not the culture here. Basketball's more the culture. Yeah, yeah. My thought was always with Oregon, with their proximity to Nike, I always thought that they would get, you know, more of the talent than most. But it seems like, and Zach, you, you'll probably have to fill in some color here. I always thought the Ohio State connection to Nike, since LeBron really, really grew to prominence, was the strongest relationship in college sports to that brand. And uh, the benefit they, in, in, you know, from what I see in the sports side of things, like sports performance, um, I would wager that a lot of the better resources end up in Ohio State's corner uh, from, you know, companies that really are pushing to see what athletes can do. 
Um, can you attest to that? Is that kind of what happens? Yeah, it was probably, I, I want to say it was four years ago when, when Ohio State renegotiated their, you know, it's like anything else. It's like athletes. Right, yeah. Like four years ago, Ohio State renegotiated their commitment with or partnership with Nike and became the number one Nike school in, in the world, right? And then I'm sure since then, some new school had to renegotiate and superseded Ohio State's contract. But I mean, it's car blanche. I mean, whatever you need, whatever you want, the latest technologies, the latest shoes, the latest everything before they're out in stores, Ohio State has them. But so does every, so does Oregon. You know, I, I think just the budget and amount that they're allowed is a little bit higher. But mm -hmm. what are we talking about? So a walk on gets four pairs of gloves instead of two. You know what I mean? It's not it's not that big of a deal. I mean, does I mean, that affect recruiting? It can. I mean, it's it's like uh it's like icing on the cake at dessert, right? It, it, it certainly doesn't hurt your meal, but and it, and it might help it a little, but you're not getting it, somebody to say, that was the best meal of my life just because the icing was good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. What I don't understand and, and is this. There's so much talent out there. We know this. You recruit out there. Schools from all over the country pull talent from California and in and, and that oh, yeah. region generally. There's so much talent. And there's some really good coaches in the Pac-12 too. Like you've got Herm Edwards with NFL experience, David Shaw at Stanford. Oregon has a decent coach, you know, uh, and USC, you have blue blood programs. What exactly caused this level of a fall in such a talent rich region? You know, I, I think it's, it's the, the, the premier programs, right? And who is a premier program? Only really USC. Who else has won a national championship out there in the last 30 years, right? Yeah. So you would say Utah is, is exceeding expectations year in, year out, right? Yeah. To, to recruit yeah. to that recruiting base is just unbelievable what Kyle Whittingham's doing there. Yeah. Uh, Oregon has been kind of what you'd expect. I mean, it's a, it's a hard place to recruit to, to get to, to anything. They just had this ridiculous Nike connection and jersey combinations. And it was really in vogue with Chip Kelly, and it's kind of faded since then. Yeah, and then so really, you're talking USC. That's what you're talking about. What happened to USC? And it's Pete yeah. Carroll left. A bunch of shady shit went on on the red carpets and with Reggie Bush, and they yeah. just have never bounced back from that. And I think they're one superstar coach away from making the West Coast relevant again. Right? Yeah. You're seeing kids leave California and, and Arizona left and right, going all yeah. over the place, and it's it's just they just need the the. The patriarch. They need USC yeah. back, right? Yeah, and there have been a lot of rumblings. Speaking about that, there's every year when this comes around, there are always rumblings about Urban potentially going to USC, which is probably one of the safest jobs after Ohio State he could take, right? Do you think that that's, that's even something he would consider? I don't think it's even on the table. One, I don't think he's going to coach in the next five years. Uh, you know, After that, who knows? He may have the itch, but he's also getting older. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it would be USC, although I will say he's an idiot because if he took his name and everything about him to LA, his brand and his platform would, I mean, multiply times a, a billion. Yeah. It'd be like LeBron and him in LA. Yeah. It would be yeah. unbelievable, yeah. but he, he won't do it. Um, but I, we can hope, right? I, it would be, That would be the best thing to happen to college football in the last 30 years. Yeah. 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 It would be really fun. Yeah. Really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that would clean up some of the uh, some of the stuff we're talking about with the NCAA getting a little bit more light. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah well, mo mo moving on to a topic I know you have you would you hate wanting to talk about Zach. Um, what happened to uh, Texas <laughs> this weekend uh, against Iowa State? Obviously, it was a it was a competitive game. Obviously, this is a fun game to watch. It was, it was a really good competitive game. 
But at the end of the day, Iowa State has no business beating Texas in uh, in the Big 12. It happened. And afterwards, one of the, the more kind of comments that, that got a lot of traction was what Iowa State's running back said, which was, they have five-star players, we have five-star culture, which I thought really hits home the point of a lot of things we've been talking about how it's not just the talent, it's the development of the talent and the culture you bring in bring in there. Zach, I'm going to give this stage to you. What's wrong with the culture at Texas where they're able to get the talent, but they're not able to develop them and get the most out of them? I mean, I think, the, and everyone knows my opinion on him. He, he was a, a really a good football coach, but not a great head coach. It start, starts with the head coach. And when your head coach is a smoke and mirrors coach, I mean, his everything he does is a charade. Going back to when he would try to fight Mike Vrabel at a mat drill, it was like everyone saw through it. It was all phony. Like everything he does is is very intelligent. He can speak well. He can try to sell it. But ultimately, it's a glass house. And when it, one stone comes across the bow, that bitch is shattering. <laughs> and yeah. it's just what it is. And then you see it in his own program. Not only did Brees Hall call it out, but then Sam, Sam Ellinger. And you think about a relationship between a head coach and a franchise quarterback. There's nobody that has the head coach's back more than the three-year starting quarterback, right? They yeah. asked him, is Tom Herman getting the most out of his players or is coaching the issue? And the kid said, that's the million-dollar question that everyone yeah, doesn't that was know. crazy that he And did. you're like, what? Yeah, you, you're not even going to back up your guy? Yeah. And then they have a team captain, 34-game starter in Samuel Cosme, their tackle, just opted out on Sunday. Like yep. the, the evidence of cultural like implosion is – I mean, it's you'd have to be an absolute idiot not to see it. But it is what it is. I think that that is the issue, right? That's why they're even on an even playing field with Iowa State. My issue goes even deeper than that, right? Yeah. Okay, they're on, they're on the a level playing field with Iowa State, which is criminal, and he should be fired for that. But then his coaching decisions in the game that cost them the game, yeah. making yeah. a punt on fourth and eight, and they end up three yards short. Fourth and two, he plows his quarterback forward like he has for 10 years and gets stuffed instead of kicking a field goal. Like, goes three and out when he has a chance to grind out the clock. Like, so many coaching decisions cost them that game that it's like, that's that's two for two, man. You got to go. Yeah, yeah, and that's that, after a performance like that with coaching mistakes, right? You know, I almost I thought that he might get fired after the game. You know, I, I think the reality is this: I talked to a, a former All American at, at Texas that, that was a football coach forever, um, and, and we talked about this job just yesterday. And yeah. the issue that Texas has is one: they have it's a massive buyout, no problem. They got plenty of money, but do they want to spend it? to fire Tom Herman and who are they getting to replace him? Like a lot of times ADs lose sight of it. And obviously Texas hasn't that, okay, we could fire this guy. That's obviously not working out, but will we get someone that can come in and do better? Because I really classify this, this implosion that Texas has had with Charlie strong and now Tom Herman. And I, I, I kind of equate it to when Phil Fulmer got fired at Tennessee. It was like, yeah. yeah, the pastures sure look greener on the other side. You get rid of this guy who's been really successful. You make three bad hires and look at Tennessee. I mean, they're like yeah. fighting with Vanderbilt. Yeah. That could be Texas in a minute if they don't yeah. make the right hires. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yep, and you're looking good. at Mac, what Mac Brown's doing in North Carolina. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I will say the uh, kicker at the end, I am really impressed by the distance he got on that kick. I no was doubt. really rooting for that to go in. hey i think we we can move on do you do you have any thoughts on who might be a good fit for that job 
Um, so I think I, I, I put it out on my show and I think there's, there's three different lists, right? One is the, who they won't get, but people will talk about, right? Urban Meyer, number one, not going to happen. People will talk about it. Sounds good. It's cute. The other guy's Eric Bieniemy, right? The hottest name in coaching. He's going to be an NFL head coach. There's not a chance in hell. Yeah. He has, to, he's going to jump the college to clean up that dumpster fire. No way. Yeah. Then there's the, who they should get, but won't get right. The first is Joe Brady, the coordinator at the Panthers. That was the coordinator yeah. with Joe Burrow, won a national title would be an insanely great hire. Great hire. Great hire. And then, and then the other two that they should get, but won't are have questionable character pass. And, yeah. and I think they would hire them if they weren't following or if they weren't going to follow a degenerate like Tom Herman. And that's yeah. Steve Sarkeesian who had the alcohol issues, trying to sleep with reporters at USC deal and then Hugh Freeze, who had God knows everything, like prostitution <laughs> rings. But they're, I mean, they're actually killing it in coaching, right? They should yeah. be on the radar for Texas, right? But that won't happen. So I think the only guy is Matt Campbell at Iowa State who just beat him. And yeah. they have to make a decision. Would firing Tom Herman and paying him millions result in Matt Campbell coming in and being a better coach? Will it yeah. bring the program back? If the answer is no, they got to keep Tom for another year. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. So, yeah. uh, moving to back into the big 10 here, um, Michigan state beat Northwestern and my, you know, my greatest joy this weekend came from our prediction last week coming true, which was Michigan losing to Penn state. That was fun, man. It, it was yeah. beautiful. <laughs> it just, it's, it just speaks to what's going on in Michigan. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's an absolute train wreck similar to Texas. I mean, just the, the, some of the things you look at when you look at Jim Harbaugh's tenure and it's like, how is this, not only how does this guy still have a job, but they're really floating around the idea that he might leave Michigan and take an NFL job. And it just blows me away. Like in what world could you, could you make that jump with the production he's had at the college level? Yeah. Just, yeah. It's bizarre, but it, it goes back to that nepotism and fraternal, like he's That's a hard is. That's what it is. The NFL, they they just they just recycle coaches. I mean, once yeah. you're in, you're in. You'll get fired somewhere because your position group sucks. Immediately, someone else hires you because you're the best thing ever. It's like they never. It's hard. It's a hard industry to crack into because nobody gets fired for good. Yeah. The tough thing about watching both of these teams is, given you know the past years of them both being a lot better than they have been this year, the athletes on the field were incredible, oh, and yeah. the brand of football being played was not even close to the caliber of the players. Yeah. Well, I think we need to come to the realization right now and as painful and as disgusting as it is to say it, the big 10 is, is the new ACC. Yeah. I mean, the ACC is a stronger conference than the big 10 today. Yeah. It just is. And you hate yeah. to see it. You hate to say it, but <laughs> the ACC made a, a categorically brilliant move in, in bringing Notre Dame in for at least for a year. And that might turn into a long-term yeah. deal and yeah. stole away what the only other blue blood that is worth a shit in the Midwest and the big 10 is another failure. Like we're adding all these teams like Maryland and Rutgers and Nebraska. And it's like Notre Dame. We had a perfect opportunity to try to grab them, even if for a year. And we just, we canceled the season and said, nah, go ahead, go somewhere else. And now we're the third best conference in the country. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and, it, and it, it's, it's looking like there's a lot of work that needs to be done because we knew Northwestern was playing above their level of talent. Oh like yeah, you, for sure. If you can't produce points, you can only win so long, you know, in, in, in modern football. But at least we have Indiana on the rise. 
And Alan, what yeah, that's, that's for sure. That's for sure. It's just a matter of, you know, we're talking the national landscape. Like, in my opinion, for Ohio State to take to make an Alabama run, they need to play some really good competition during the year to do it. And the Big Ten is not holding up their end of the bargain. They're not recruiting like the SEC. They're not coaching like the SEC. Their scheme, everything they're doing, their player development outside of Ohio State, no one is even close to that level. And yeah. it's just. It's, it's depressing. Like, there's no reason why they can't be. They have money, right? Yeah. That's all it takes. Yeah. Hire the right guys, spend the money, and you got it. Could yeah. Ohio State potentially leave the Big Ten? No, and could never. that be a strategic move? No. I mean, if there was a time to do it, it was when they canceled the season. Ohio State yeah. could have just pulled the plug and said, this is ridiculous. Like, we'll talk later. Kind of one of those deals. Yeah. Like, you get in a big fight with your girlfriend, and you're like, all right, we'll just talk later, all right? I'm, I'm going to take, take a little time. But they're they're never going to. I mean, that's just yeah. you yeah, talk about history, and I mean they're yeah. a founding member. It's just not going to happen. Is it? Yeah, it's not just history, but it's also the the power, yeah, um, that they carry in this conference. You know, no it's doubt. hard it's hard to to leave that behind. But you know, let's move on from some, all this depressing stuff and to one of the more positive and uplifting stories of the weekend, which was Sarah Fuller becoming the first female in a Power Five conference to play in a game. Um, as a kicker, I mean, obviously she, she placed that kick perfectly. Um, we've seen, um, over time, just how competitive female soccer is and how good of a brand that is. I could, Mia Hamm could kick a 50 yard field goal. No problem. Now in, in that specific position, punter or kicker or place kicker, do you guys think that there, a female could ever make it? into not just a power five, but potentially make it to the next level where they at least just ha handle the kicking duties. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a tough, a tough thing to answer. I mean, I think the biggest problem with kickers is the, their mental makeup. And so sure. If, if, if there's a female out there with the mental fortitude, because to be honest, the male kickers are, are absolute head cases. So yeah. what, if a female is too, what's the difference, right? Yeah. Uh, as far as physiologically, I don't know if they have the leg for the NFL, but they could do it in college. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's possible. You've seen it. It's some smaller scale. And I think this was unfortunate. I mean, it's cool. It was cool that it happened. It was yeah. cool that history was made, but it also was kind of a random ploy to change the game by a lame duck head coach that was getting fired. It's like, okay, so now you're going to use this girl to kick a squib kick and try to like leave your mark on college football. Come on, bro. Like that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that's, that, a, I mean, that's a really good point. I think in general, this, this conversation comes up a lot about, um, you know, different genders playing different sports. It goes outside of football. And it's it's an interesting thing because I think as a fan, it's like, well, if you're good enough to make the game better, then I would love to see you play regardless of your gender Absolutely. or your makeup, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think just physiologically, right? Females are not as strong and powerful and as explosive as men. Just, I think that's biology, but I, I'm sure someone will take offense to that somewhere in the world. <laughs> so I think it's, a men's sport is fair game. Like you said, like if, if she can, if, if a woman can come in and perform at a high level and enhance the sport, have at it. Now for yeah. the other way around, I think it's the most criminal thing in the world yeah. to let a boy who like identifies as a girl go win 12 state championships is like, come on, man, that ain't fair. Like yeah. he was born stronger. What is that? Did you see yeah. that? There's like this, uh, uh power lifter who uh, broke all of the women's lifting records by identifying as a girl for 12 seconds while he did a deadlift wow. and went crazy viral, drew a ton of hate. But I mean, case in point, that's um, that's the downside of this kind of gender fluidity 
situation uh, in today's society, right? Which, you know, nothing against that. But if you're looking at athletic performance, you should be comparing apples to apples. Yeah, that's, no that's a fair way, to, fair way to look at it. And, you know, moving on to one more positive thing. And, and Zach, I know I love talking about this subject with you specifically because I know you were probably the first person to identify how special this kid was. Terry McLaurin made a play in that Thanksgiving game. If you watched it, it was a seven-point game at that point. Um, Huge. And they threw an interception. Jalen Smith, who's a very fast linebacker, caught the ball and seemed like he was going to dance his way into the end zone. You see Scary Terry get up, chase him down, and make a tackle around the four-yard line. They hold him to a field goal. And from that point on, the game, you know, obviously Mike McCarthy has no business as an NFL coach, it seems like, with the decisions he's making. But the game from there goes from a close game. That one play changes. It ends up 41-16. Talk to us again about how special this kid is and how it makes you feel to see him go from that kid that Urban didn't even want to at that point he was leading the NFL and receiving after that game. Well, it's just – it's awesome. I mean, you know, it's just like anything else. Like you you see a kid – make a play like that. And when you know that's how he lives, that's how he lives his life, that's how he practices, that's how he runs go routes, that's how he blocks. Like that's just, that wasn't just a great effort play. Like that was his makeup and character as a human. You know what I mean? That just to bounce up and as hard as he could possibly go to try to catch him and make a tackle. Like, and if the best part is, even if he couldn't, you would have seen the same effort. Like even if it was so out of reach, you would have seen the same effort to try to get there. And that's what makes him different. Like that's what makes it so cool is that was not just because he could make the tackle. That's just how he does everything. Yeah. Which is amazing. It's cool to see these young receivers like uh, him, him, DK, just crushing it in the NFL right now. It's anytime a new generation really steps up and leaves their mark on the game is an exciting thing to witness. Yeah, especially their maturity, right? Like to have yeah. that type of headspace, to be in the headspace that they're in at, at that young of an age is is what we want to see from from athletes and specifically from the wide receiver position. You coach these guys, there's something wrong with a lot of them. Uh, Most of them. What do you mean? <laughs> Almost every one of them. But yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to see how he's impacting his team. And, and, and it's crazy to think about uh, what, what, what he be, would be doing right now if he had a halfway decent quarterback. I mean, it's they benched Haskins for God knows what reason. Now he's playing with you, me, and, and, and Partha. And it's like this kid's almost leading the NFL with like a duck throwing him a, a ball. Like it's just yeah. – can you imagine with a good old line and a good quarterback? Yeah. Yeah. I do want to also touch on, because there's a college connection, um, the Broncos – uh, with Jordan Fuller, if I'm get, is it Jordan Fuller? Did I get the name right? The Rams with Jordan Fuller. Uh, the Broncos played a quarterback who was the quarterback. Oh. Oh, at I think his name's like Hinton or something. Kendall Hinton. There it is. Yeah, Kendall, Kendall Hinton. Hinton played quarterback this weekend for the Broncos. He was the quarterback at UCF. Um, now a receiver in the league. You know, it it wasn't pretty, but uh, shout out to him. He said it was 24 hours before the game that he was called. He wasn't wasn't on a roster. Got told he's playing Sunday. Get over to get over to Denver, you know. Um, but pretty awesome just to see. I think for the general fan, it provides context as to the skill level in the NFL because this is a guy who was a quarterback at a D one school and was good enough to even be considered right to play in the NFL. And right. I mean, 
it was rough watching watching the game, you know. So. But you you knew it was going to be rough when yeah. the Broncos petitioned the NFL and asked if their assistant coach could play quarterback yeah. for one game. You're like, holy shit, are your quarterback that kid's that bad? Like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, it's it's uh it's a different level, especially that position. Just everything yeah. that goes on, the 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 schemes, the way things happen, how fast they happen, and how. Well, you need to know what you're doing, and and that poor kid didn't stand a chance. I mean, th that's why they tried to have the coach play because the coach at least knows everything. Yeah, like he he studies film, he knows the offense in and out, and it was like shit. Even if he can't throw, he'll get us in the right protection or get us in the right run play. Yeah. I mean, that kid had no chance. So here's my question to you, Zach: If they asked you at Ohio State to come in and play because all the quarterbacks were sick or something <laughs> against Michigan, right? What do you think the final score of the game would be with you as quarterback for oh our Ohio State team? <laughs> this year? This year. Oh, it would be bad. We don't have a run game. I, who am I, I going to hand it to? I ain't throwing it to anybody. <laughs> I mean, I tore my rotator cuff. I can't throw anymore, really. So who, the run game's just average. We're getting smoked. Smoked. <laughs> you I put think me a tight end or something, I'll think, cut a guy. I think the QB draw would get us about six inches every play. <laughs> yeah, six inches from where I catch the snap. <laughs> oh man that's 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 a great way to to end the segment <laughs> i think a lot of our audience is is contemplating seeing zach in a in a uniform behind center right now but yeah if you want to see that let's tweet at ohio state at, co at coach zach smith let's get him in for qb we might need to find an adult adult men's league tackle football <laughs> these next few weeks are going to be crazy so Definitely stay tuned to our college football segment and uh, looking forward to this weekend. Hopefully, we Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me, guys. Show the Pilot Boys some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Hey, guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a Pilot Boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes a Lasso Sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built-in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Brandon Chubb, my longtime buddy. He's been with us since we started Lasso, and now you're on the Pilot Boy Podcast. Brandon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about it. I saw the content, uh, wondered what it was about, wondering when I was going to get my invite. Finally got it, so I'm excited. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. So, you know, one of the things I admire about you so much is not only the fact that you were extremely successful in sports as a, as a pro athlete, but before that, um, you know, in the context in which we met, it was really just the way that you think about business, the way you think about sports and the game. Um, I think that's what really drew me towards you. Um, can you share a little bit about, you know, your upbringing? I think you and your brother share this in terms of just the the business mentality. You know, where was that instilled for you? Yeah, no, uh, I think from 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 my upbringing that was instilled later, later in my life. Right. I think going to wait for is being around a lot of people who've come from entrepreneurial families, uh, being a lot of, around a lot of people who went on to be entrepreneurs. And then 
it actually started really with my agent, right? He's an entrepreneur, you, you know him as well. And that's kind of how we met. But uh, him owning several businesses and being able to be around somebody like that, right? Somebody that's always on go, always thinking about business, always thinking about um, certain things and having that entrepreneurial spirit, it rubs off on you. And then me being an econ major, my mind was always, you know, already always trying to figure out supply and demand or why this, why this equals that, you know, what yeah. makes the world work. So you put th- both of those in the same room and it rubs off. It makes a good mixture to wh- what I am today with my, my business acumen. That's awesome. Yeah, I actually read something interesting. You know, a lot of this they say is sometimes genetic, right? And one of the interesting tidbits I read, actually, I read it um, when I was read something about Nick Chubb. You know, he's here in Cleveland. So we, we hear a lot about him, but that the background of the Chubb family, actually, your ancestors actually were one of the first people to start a free settlement, um, actually, during the Civil War era, before... The first free black uh, settlement, Chubbsville, I think that's probably where you guys got your name. Yeah. Uh, so how much how much do you know about that? That's really interesting to me. I want to hear about it. Yeah. So Chubbtown, it uh, started with, with my ancestors uh, moving from North Carolina and, and really just starting their own town. Right. In Chubbtown, which is Cedartown, Georgia, coming northwest towards towards Alabama. And yeah, I mean, we're never slaves. And I think that history is instilled in every every chub boy right so you see nick and you hear his his story right you talk to my brother and you're around him and you see how he uh moves in his life and then you talk to me you talk to my parents you know you talk to everybody in our family and it kind of rubs off on you right and it's a sense of pride and so i make i make this joke all the time and 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 it's it's kind of a running joke. I kind of I'm tired of making it though but people ask me they hear my last name and they say, oh you related to Nick Chubb and I'll tell them every chub's related. And I'm not yeah. saying that, you know, sarcastically. It's literally like, you know, every chub is related. So it's, it's only uh, a handful of us. And so we take pride in that last name because we know when you when you bring chub, you think of, you know, Nick or Bradley or me in, in whatever region of the country you're in. So it, it really uh, affects us and, and, and makes us hold ourselves to a higher standard, even if it's uh, subconsciously. Does yes. that ever get heavy for you? Uh, I don't I don't think so. I think I've done enough to to build my brand as my own man right so i'm never I, I, I always want people to be successful right especially people around me people who uh are in my family people who i'm friends with you know including yourself right so it's never one of those things that is is heavy or it's too much pressure i tell people all the time like my dad was a football player played in the nfl played at uga um and you know i never was pressured to be a football player. I played all four sports growing up. Uh, football is just the one that stuck. It was just happened to be the one I, I had the body for and was was be- best fit for my skill set. So it's never really pressure. It's more just a sense of, like I said, pride and, and wanting to keep that, you know, when you hear Chubb, it's, you light up, right? Instead of saying, oh, like you're, oh, that's, you're, you know what I'm saying? So it's one of those things that we always want to keep it there and, and pass it down. Yeah, I so, want to talk talk a little bit about your, your football story, right? Because I think, you know, football is obviously everyone knows the glory of the sport, but I think football teaches people who play it a lot, um, regardless of what level they get to or how far they go. What life lessons has football taught you? Uh, I mean, it's taught me many, right? I, I even named my foot, uh, my uh, BC firm Captain's Partners, right? 
because we are captains at Wake Forest. And that says a lot about our character, our work ethic and our intangibles. And I want people, you know, founders or other entrepreneurs to understand like what we bring to the table when, when we invest our dollars. But to your question specifically, um, football's taught me a lot. I said on a, uh, uh, Atlanta startup weekend panel last weekend, they asked me how does being a football player make you a great investor or, or you know, be able to uh, go over into the investment world. And I said, it's because I, I understand what it takes to, to, to really make yourself the best. And I'm not saying I'm the best football player in the field, but to go to the, from high school to college, if you look at the statistics of high school athletes that become D1 FBS college yeah. athletes, it's tiny. And then you take that percentage or take that group and then you turn into NFL players and it's even tinier, right? So uh, being able to, to withstand that, I was in a position that way for is my first two years. I had a coach who recruited me. My second two years, we had a new coach building a, a, a culture and getting people to buy in. You know, that was another thing football taught me how to, how to lead. Uh, you have guys who aren't recruited by this coach or pissed at the other coach yeah. left. Other the new coach is doing his new way that you've been accustomed to doing your old way for three years, and you're like, you know, is this even is this even worth it? Right? Is it even going to pay off? And so being able to sit to t through two, three, and nine seasons as a junior and a senior, yeah. but then you know next year they beat Texas A&M in the uh, Belt Bowl, and then the year after that they beat Temple, ranked number fifteen in the uh, Military Bowl, and it just it's a, it's a snowball effect. So um, football teaches you a lot. I, I know I'm rambling on this, but it, it really can't be overstated, right? And and it's something that. I think is uh, very, very vital for, yeah. for where I'm at today. I think you you said it right. It teaches you to get to the level you're at. It's not about being the best. It's about being the best version of yourself. Right. Um, and it gives you the discipline to chase that. And wherever it ends, I think this is true for any sport, wherever it ends for you, if you put your best effort forward, you became the best version of yourself in that space. Mm -hmm. And you can then go and apply that to wherever else you do in life. Right. And it just also helps you be, uh, especially for entrepreneurs, it just helps you like understand the real world, right? Under understand that life isn't easy. Shit, shit isn't easy, right? Yeah. Part that can attest is being a startup founder, it is not easy. And and yeah. I say this like football, every day you're watching meetings on the practice you had that day and the practice the night before yeah. or the game before, right? And so it's not constructive criticism, it's not to hold your hand, it's not to tell you how nice your cleats are, it's to tell you, you know, what you did wrong, what you did right, and it's mostly what you did wrong. And so you have yeah. to be able to roll with that, take that, internalize it. And whether it's uh, bias, bias uh, criticism or not, you got to internalize that and, and produce and turn that into production, whether that's uh, better production or, 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 or less. And, and that's what kind of makes football players uh, get to where they're at today. And, and the same can be said for entrepreneur. You got to roll with the punches. A lot of people won't tell you your idea is stupid. This makes no sense. It's not, it's not comfortable either, right? Uh, football taught yeah. me be, be comfortable uh, in uncomfortable situations. And I yeah. think uh, entrepreneurship is a lot of that as well. Yeah. yeah. And let's let's dive deeper into, you mentioned the captain's mentality and, and you know, why you named uh, your venture fund Captain's Partners. Um, one of the things, I'll, I'll give you guys a dose of vulnerability here. One of the things that I really struggled with in building Lasso was accountability, personally. It was very, very hard to take ownership for my own mistakes. But once I started owning it, it became very, very easy to become successful with building the company because you know I, everything was in my control to be able to yeah. fix. Right. When you think about the captain's mentality, Brandon, is that a similar hurdle that a lot of athletes have trouble getting over mentally? 
Yeah, uh, one vulnerability in itself, right? Football players, you think you're you're athletes in general. You're this larger than life character. You're this macho man or woman. You're you're kind of invincible, right? And, and you're idolized, so you kind of have that superhero stigma to you. And so, vulnerability in the first place is is one of the hardest things that athletes have to do, right? Just to say, hey, I'm wrong. Hey, I need help. Hey, I don't get this. I can't do this. Like I, you know, reaching out for another hand. And then two, um, being able to own up to your mistakes, right? I think in football, you can easily get hidden from the 21 other players, right? If there's a 98 yard run up the middle of the field, like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just did versus the Carolina Panthers, it's easy to not know who to blame that on or who to know, or for as a fan, who messed up. But as a football player, the other 10 players on defense understand that that was your gap. And, you know, so you got to be able to own up to that, uh, accept that mistake, or else they're not going to be able to, uh, as a team, uh, buy in with you for the rest of the uh, game. And that goes a long way. That, you know, that one mistake can turn into two quarters of bad plays if you don't own up to it. So um, it's one of those things that's really taught, right? A good leader, a good captain, um, a good football athlete in general who, who accepts accountability, accepts, uh, you know, what is what is brought to their plate and what is expected out of them is is real important for success of the team, not just the individual player. Yeah. yeah. And how do you find people like that? So, I mean, now that you're on the venture side of things, you know, you're going to have to target people who are raising money or successful founders, you know, where there's a lot of ego. I'll tell you first and mm -hmm. foremost, there's a right. lot of attitude. There's a lot of uh, celebration of founders these days, which can lend to that. And, you know, I, I think beyond everything, I, I think about this a lot, right? But I mean, uh, you and I both came from, you know, relatively middle class upbringings. Um, there's a lot of people that are not exposed to the value set or the way of thinking that's required to be successful in this country. Um, yet somehow they're able to kind of find these tools. And I think all of us go through some sort of evolution in uh, you know, all of this, all of these respects in the course of our lives. Um, what, I guess, what brings you to people, like what gravitates you toward others that share the same values as you and, you know, in what environments, like from a literal standpoint, do you meet them the most? Right. I think first it starts with, with just your relationships, right? Your network. So you, for example, I met you through another entrepreneur that I just mentioned who I thought was a great entrepreneur. I respected his business acumen and I, I respected how he handled himself as a person Let's and so the, the quick shout out yeah there. evan Give rosenberg yeah. yeah so entrepreneurs obviously hang out with other entrepreneurs and good entrepreneurs hang out with other good entrepreneurs yeah. right so evan um you know connecting us and then you you know you connect to me to other entrepreneurs that's kind of one the organic way to do it right but two it's important to sit down and talk with these founders and, and obviously in 2020 zoom with these founders and really uh you know understand them be, be behind the product behind the business model behind the uh uh whatever go to market strategy right and really understand uh who they are where they come from what they're about and honestly bro i can sniff out bullshit right i, I can sniff out ego because i don't i'm not i'm not one who 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 thinks that i have an ego right i try not to have i try to be as modest as possible I try to be, you know you know i try to be as you know honest as possible i try to be as you know, low key as possible. I'm not going to be, even if, if I was a, you know, two unicorns under my belt, you wouldn't know it unless you asked me. Right. So I guess because I'm anti that, I also am very, very uh, good at sniffing it out or, or just really feeling that vibe in the room, right. Talking to these guys and really just hashing that out. So um, I think the biggest thing is like, like I said, the network, 
surround yourself with good entrepreneurs. Yeah. And and one person told me this, um, Seth Berger at uh, Harris Blisser, he said, even if we don't invest in an entrepreneur because we don't like his idea, right? He's always going to be, or she's always going to be uh, a person who's coming up with their next big idea, their next company. So even if we don't like this one, we'll like the next one or the one after that. Or they'll introduce us to somebody who we, whose idea we like, and sh- that person, he or she can be a part of their team. So just being, or, you know, organically uh, building that network and, and surrounding yourself with great people. Yeah. One of, one of the network is such a big word. And I wanted to touch on that a little bit, specifically in the world of college athletics. You know, I'm definitely on the side that uh, college athletes deserve more than they, they get um, at these universities, considering how much revenue they generate. <laughs> right. <laughs> but one thing I advise a lot of the young athletes that come through my alma mater, Ohio State, is that understand that although you may not be able to make money, and instead of getting frustrated with that, appreciate the value that's being generated by the fact that you're a Ohio State football player, and what you can do with that is completely up to you. And it goes back to what you're saying in terms of building your network, right? How early did you, because it seems like for you, you thought about that early on, right? And at Wake Forest, and you started building your network. What what advice would you give guys, whether they're the superstar or whether they're the average guy? You don't know. An injury could happen. Football is a brutal sport. Your career could end even if you're projected to be a top five NFL pick. What advice would you give guys about building their network while they're at, at college? No, that's a great question. I would love to talk about this topic because it really changed my life, right? So, yeah. one, I'm, 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 you know, lucky that Wake Forest is the smallest power five school in the country with four thousand undergrad, right? So, yeah, the the network in a sense of everybody kind of knows everybody. So, it's not one of those things where I'm, I'm, you know, co-emailing people on campus to, you know, I'm in this class with them, I'm, I'm in the cafeteria with them, I'm at the parties with them. So, I understand, I understand who. Who is who are in, 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 in meeting people, right? But to your point, I didn't understand this network uh, proposition really until my second year in the NFL. And so you say Ohio State, I, I, I honestly cannot understate how important it is if you're an Ohio State player that you have so much leverage, right? Even yeah. if you're the last guy on the bench, yeah. nobody will know one because <laughs> a lot of fans just really just love the team. They don't really yeah. like individual players unless you're like some polarizing player yeah. like Johnny Manziel or, you know, Pat Mahomes, right? But yeah. so my second year in the NFL, I realized I, I had I tore my ACL. I was out the whole season. So I was just literally on injured reserve, going to rehab every day at the facility, coming home and, you know, by two o'clock. And so I started getting involved in things. The NFLPA had this program where they fly you out once a month for three months to the NFLPA headquarters in, in Washington, D.C. They do a workshop, like a three-day yeah. workshop. So you meet people, you, you're, you're refining your LinkedIn, you're, you're building a resume, you're listening to other career opportunities, internships, externships, figure out what you are, what you like outside of football. Yeah. That was big for me, right? And then two, it made me realize how easy it was to network as an NFL player. Yes. You leverage that shield. So my biggest advice to your question is leverage leverage the shield, leverage that logo, leverage whatever it is, you know, leverage the uh the Ohio's the Buckeye, the O, right? Yeah. Leverage the NFL yeah. shield, leverage, you know, whatever it may be, because whether you whether you're, you know, the Sean Watson or, you know, the the uh Dabble Sweeney's placeholder son on the Clemson, the the uh whatever his name is. 
people do not care as long as you got that Paul in your helmet. Yeah. And they can tell their friends, hey, I, you know, guess who I had lunch with? Guess who I had dinner with? Guess who yeah. emailed me? And I just want to be around you. So uh, I can't, I can't overstate just leveraging your platform while you have it. And that will go a long way. And so at Wake, I mean, in NFL, I did that my second year, started building my network. And then I realized all these great people who, great alums at Wake who are, yeah. who are successful entrepreneurs and, and so forth and so on. And so leveraging the NFL, hey, you know, I'm such and such for the Detroit Lions. Would love to, you know, sit down in your office and, you know, whatever it may be yeah. and, and getting on phone calls. So I think that's that's huge. And, and the athletes, obviously, you should be paid and, and – I think the NIL thing is, is moving towards that direction. But yeah. at the same time, you, you really can't just complain about your circumstance and you just really got to take advantage of what you've got at the, at the moment. So leveraging that platform is yeah. so, 100% crucial. Did you notice for you know a lot of college athletes or maybe you went through this yourself at, at some point, but whether it's college or whether it's pro, once you leave the sport, that platform starts to fade a little bit. Is that tough to deal with mentally? Oh, and yes, and that's why you see um, a lot of athletes who go uh, go rogue basically when, when they're done playing, right? Or um, do things that are out of character that you normally don't associate them with because they don't build that off the field identity. They don't leverage the, the on the field brand while they have it. They don't uh, focus on other opportunities. Their only interest, and, and it's kind of the structural pipeline, the way it's set up, it, it kind of disadvantages these athletes. But, um, it makes them realize it makes it makes them prioritize only football or only basketball or only yeah. whatever. And that disadvantages the athlete when they're done. And so being able to have athletes or get around athletes get around people who understand other things outside of football, but also can help them leverage that platform or understand that, you know, as a as a you know guy with a degree at a, a lesser school. Just because you were the man when you were playing five years ago doesn't mean you're going to be the man when it's time to uh, uh, go on LinkedIn and, and fill out job applications, right? And so um, you see that a lot, and, and it's sad, but I think the, the, the tide is kind of turning. NFLPA does a lot yeah. of education for that. Um, and then also I think it's a responsibility of these universities, right? These people in place to to kind of – help these athletes and put them at an advantage when they, when they're done playing football. Cause a lot of athletes, no matter if you go to Clemson, Ohio state, whatever, just cause you were a five-star in high school, doesn't mean you're going to be a five-star in, in scouts eyes when it's time to, you know, run the, run the 40 yard dash at the combine and, and draft you. So um, being able to uh, build an off field brand and focus on the off field is, isn't huge. Yeah. And I think it's critical also, you know, one thing that I admire there's, you know, I've got critiques of, of our program as well. But one of the things that I, I love about what Urban Meyer did was he started that for these kids at, at, at Ohio state, right? Real life one, they have a program called real life Wednesdays where they bring in CEOs and people outside of that world. And then they also have an internship program. Um, and then there's also an internal internal brand you, which teaches these guys about right. their brands. And I think, and Partha mentioned this, it's not just athletes. I think it's a lot of young adults. They're not taught what they need to be taught in at a younger age, right? We learn history, we learn science, but those skills that you need to be successful in the real world, financial management, networking, these type of things are not influenced intentionally in our academic institutions. So I think it's it's up to guys, you know, players, former players like you and others who understand it 
to also help create those programs or whatever institution they're at and force the school if you're not going to pay us you're going to give us all the resources we need to be successful after our life in football is over right and i know i didn't know ohio state had that i mean that sounds like an awesome program uh to be able to do that right because you have a lot of guys who were their man coming out of their high school were told nothing but they're going to the nfl they just got to play in college for three years you know and so they don't think about nothing else they think about they hear those voices that's all they that's all they know right and that's all they train their mind to think and focus on for the next three years and so you're kind of on a hamster wheel you're chasing that dream and even if it doesn't come you're still chasing that dream until you really you know get faced with the hard dose of reality and by that time it's too late by that time is you know um a different situation and usually doesn't end up well for for that athlete so i mean those 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 opportunities i mean you said that the ceo thing i can't imagine being around a ceo uh, for the first time, right? Especially yeah. a, a CEO with a great company. First time I did it was in 2020 or when I was 22, right? Omar yeah. Simmons, uh, CEO of Exaltar Capital, a private equity firm in Boston, Massachusetts, owns the largest holdings of Planet Fitness. And after I got off the phone with him, I honestly thought my life was changed. Not because he gave me some crazy advice, but the fact that Omar Simmons at seven in the morning while he was getting dressed for work to go run a $90 million franchise uh, yeah. empire, sat down and talked to me for 30 minutes. It, it changed my life, right? And just to know it's out there. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's I think, those, yeah. those that's such people. a powerful point, too, right? It's like anytime you can get connected with a CEO or really anybody doing something significant, it's like it makes it real. It makes the dream real. Right, right. Yeah. It makes it real. Mm-hmm. And you just, you're more educated about it, too, right? So, you might realize, oh, I, I kind of like private equity. And that's, you know, that's how I got down this rabbit hole. Or it's like, oh, well, I might like business. I might like something other than football. And now I'm here, I'm listening to the Halo podcast and Omar Simmons is a guest. And I'm like, you know, being a fanboy, like, oh, I might got to talk to him. And now I'm keeping up with this story. And then it puts me down another rabbit hole that makes me want to be like him or do something like him or realize the the things he's doing and see if that's something I like and, and to, you know, put a foot in that and, and really get a taste. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's paramount. So, so take, take us into your process, right? Like, um, Football ended. It's something, regardless of how mentally tough you are, it's something you did your whole life. And suddenly it's taken away from you, right? There had to have been some, for some guys, it's brief. For some guys, it's long lasting. Kind of that, what do I do now? Take us into that journey from football is over to now I'm going to get into the VC world and start Captain Partners. Right. Um, So, in my perspective, so my story is I have five knee surgeries, right? Five knee scopes stemming from that ACL that happened in 2017. These all happened in the past 14 months, literally starting July. Last one I had was July of 2019. Last one I had was August 28th, 2020. So that might not be 30. It might be a different number, but uh, point being that I'm trying to rehab a knee. And so I understand, I'm just realistic, right? I understand that five knee surgeries and this problem still isn't fixed there might be a bigger so problem that's the that's i guess maybe the first question is football actually over for you so no so i don't i haven't i haven't closed the doors yet call. yeah okay. right so yeah. but i position myself like i was like i was saying earlier to my other, uh, earlier point i position myself so when that when that door is closed whether that's in five years whether that's in five months in five weeks five days that i understand i can hit the ground running into something else and i'm not one of those guys who 
and it's nothing wrong with it. I mean, to each his own, but I'm not one of those guys who was, you know, sitting on the couch for two years thinking just something's going to fall on my lap. And then after year three, look at my bank account and I realized, oh, I got to get something now and I'm doing something I don't like, right? But I was in a position where I could have really changed and, and really forecasted my whole career uh, to, to my liking. So um, that's that's the position I'm in right now. But uh, I, got a, I got that taste in 2017 when I tore my ACL. Yeah. Never been hurt in my life. Never missed yeah. a football game ever in my life. And now I'm missing a whole season and I'm only 23, 22. And I'm realizing that I got to realize what, one, what do I like to do besides football? Two, what does that look like and how can I get involved in that and really get, get that uh, started now? And so this pandemic really offered that opportunity, right? February through, you know, April is usually uh, time you're at home and then you go back to the facility April, May, June and do yeah. OTAs and stuff. And so because of COVID, we didn't have to do that. So I had six, seven months where I really said I have a window where I can really start something, get into it, and not have to stop it to run back to a facility or run back to a, a practice and, and, and start football over, you know? So uh, that's kind of where I'm at. But being able to position myself and really be realistic, you know, a lot yeah. of people don't understand Bro. it. You know, you, this is you, always, I bet you see it all the time. This has always been the thing about you, though, is that you have this motor so v the first night i met brandon in person i'm not counting when we <laughs> accidentally ran into each other at the hawks game and it I was, was crazy I was too being, yeah he was, was like crazy. what's up artha and i was being super awkward i was like i don't know who this guy is and he, we introduced ourselves and i i'm an awkward guy when you first meet me most of the time that just for everyone out there but anyway we hung out in Charlotte and it's, you know, 1am we're having these like watermelon tacos or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, yo, Brandon, it was so like, what's the plan? What do you got tomorrow? He's like, Oh, I'm working out with, you know, the head of NC state, the coach at NC state. And I was like, okay, what time? He's like, well, I'm working out before my flight to DC. I was like, what's in DC? He's like NFLPA meeting. I was like, wait, so you're working out in the morning and then you're taking a flight for a full day of meetings, but that flight's gotta be early. When's the workout? He's like, oh yeah, probably four or five. It's like it's it's one right now. Do you not like? I sleep a lot, man. Where's this, like? What do you take? Where's this motor from, dude? And, it, and I think that's just around being around, you know, like-minded company and being able to understand that one, you know, time is of the essence. But two, that's just kind of how I roll. I don't know why. I, I sleep, you know, six seven hours a, a day now. Back then it was probably four or five because we were literally out to like one thirty. Had that workout, like you said, at four from four to five. And I think my flight was at 630 because I texted you like, hey, I, I made it, you know, yeah. it was last minute. Yeah. Um, but it, it honestly just came from hunger. Um, yeah. I'm a guy who was on a high school. So let me just give you this background. So my high school team, my freshman year, it was the second year being in existence. So 2007. So I was the second graduating class from freshman to senior year. So you oh. think about recruiting. Urban Meyer hasn't heard about Hillgrove High School. Yeah. 2011 if it, j it just opened in 2006 yeah. that's just not on his pipeline uh mark rick hasn't heard about it uh Dabo sweeney hasn't heard so i say that to say i felt like i was under recruited i, I have yeah that four yeah four or five offers uh that were double a my senior year so that was app state firm in georgia southern and uh chattanooga right and so i committed to app state at the time that was the best offer i had as far as uh, a football program they you know came out for national championship then last minute, Wake offered me uh, because somebody dropped out. And so I was like uh, a guy who, who who met a recruiting quota. So that recruiting coach get his bonus, right? So uh, it wasn't something that they were thrilled about having me on campus. But I say that to say I had this chip on my shoulder that, one, I thought I should have been somewhere that I wasn't. But two, 
that it just is stuck with me my whole life. Cause then you go from weight fours when I'm the, you know, ACC linebacker of the year, the highest, the highest voted linebacker by the coaches and the media on the first team, all ACC team. And then I get no combine invite, no um, senior bowl invites. Yeah, and those are really like precursors to, to getting drafted. Right. And so I go undrafted. And, and so that, 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 that story continues. Right. And so, that's where that motor comes from. I just feel like I, I always have something to do. I always have something to to conquer, overcome, or, or get out the way. And but so just always staying hungry. I've got to push on you again, dude, because I know a lot of people with chips on their shoulder, but they project that onto people yeah. around them. How do you stay with such a chip driving you? How do you not let that intense energy spill out in a negative way? You've only been right. the nicest person ever every time I've hung out with you or talked to you. How do you, how do no. you handle all of that? No, I appreciate that. But I think honestly, just my parents, right? My mom is the same. She has a, She's had a chip, you know, um, came from a, a, a lower income family and now is, you know, where she's at in her career, worked her butt off for 30 years for affordable housing climbed up the ranks as high as she could get without getting into a political office. And and now she's, you know, chief of staff for Mayor, ba- Mayor Bottom. So being able to see her grind it out and, and really uh, overcome the, the negativity, especially being a black woman in that space, overcoming the doubters, whatever it may be, it's always kept me going. And so, um, like you said, like I said earlier, I just, I mean, I've, I've seen so much that you really can't tell me like, about your new Lamborghini or, you know, your, your revenue for 2019 and it's going to blow my socks off. Right. So I, I just, I, I, I cringe when people, when I hear people or I'm around people that do that to me. And so I try not to project that on other people. So like you said, a lot of people who have chips on their shoulder will be, you know, assholes and, and let you know that they have a chip on their shoulder and why they shouldn't have it. So, I mean, but to each his own, but that, that really just turns me off and is real cringy. So I, I really try to, I'm, I'm anti that because I really try to be the polar opposite. I don't want to be on this podcast and somebody listen to be like, yo, that guy is, fuck, you know, a, a, a douche or whatever, you know, it's just, uh, look, there not. must, there must be, something, <laughs> there must have been something in the, in the water in Chubbville, right? Because you're like that. And, you know, we're very familiar with Nick Chubb. And the reason that I love the, the kid, I've not, I haven't met him personally is, is that character, right? He's one of the best running backs in the NFL. He scores a touchdown, doesn't celebrate. Right. We saw the latest example when he could have scored a touchdown and it wouldn't have made a difference. The Browns still would have won the game, right. mm-hmm. but instead he runs out of bounds. Mm-hmm. And I think your brother is the exact same way. You guys carry yourselves with a certain, it's not, it's not, it's humility, right? But mm-hmm. I look at it as it's like a type of confidence that's rare, right? Very secure in yourself to the point that you don't need to project as Partha said that confidence through insecurity onto other people. And I think that's why specifically in a blue collar town, um, people have really gravitated toward Nick Chubb. Um, Right. And and you said the two words, I think secure and humility words I should have said um, that I really couldn't get out at the time. But I mean, I think those are, those are it. I'm securing myself, which is one reason I don't have to, you know, brag about or, or, or be boastful. Right but also secure it in myself to, to understand that there's no pressure on me uh, to part this earlier question, but also humility, you know, being able to, you know, my mom, if you walk past her, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know who she was. Right. But you know, she's on billboards. She's, you know, on every press yeah. conference on, on, on CNN or whatever, whatever shows it. Right. So um, those are, those are huge. Those running our family and 
we really had that blue collar mentality. I mean, you said blue collar town. I think, you know, when you when you start up Chub Town and, and you realize the origins of, you know, hand and fist, people are really starting in their own community. That rubs that rubs down on you. You know, it rubs down yeah. on on everything you do. Yeah, and Partha told me a interesting story uh, when we talked about you guys not even knowing that you were all cousins until shortly before before the draft. Is that true? Yeah. So it was probably yeah three three two or three years before the draft, Bradley's draft, because um, he's a second cousin of ours. But he, um, you know, was doing well at Georgia. Doing he was a five star running back in high school. So we realized we were cousins probably when, you know, because him and Bradley are the same age uh, yeah. when they were about to go to NC State in Georgia. And then uh, we, we connected. Uh, and, and Nick has an older brother, Zach, who, who's around my age. And so we all connected at, at their house and really just put the pieces of the puzzle together. And, uh, you know, because we just were all doing similar things. And, and so that relationship continually grew, uh, especially up to the draft when um, Brad goes first round, Nick goes second round, and they're both, you know, highly touted. Highly, highly talented players uh, going into that. So that's just that's a great story. It's a great story. So let's let's dig a little bit just more into the business side of things now. So you know, I guess like the best way to think about it is you've been working two jobs for the last several <laughs> years. You've been an NFL player. You've also been building, um, you know, your business portfolio. Um, can you talk a little bit about? how you think about invest investments in general yeah. and um as well as like with your fund i guess what i would really love to know what character traits are from the business side of the time that you've spent you know the shadowing the mentoring like the more i would say like um business businessy things <laughs> and on the other side what are the x factor traits that come from you you know, being a great football player, plus the incredible humility you have, the upbringing you've had. Um, how do those two things segment? How have they contributed into your investment philosophy? No, uh, great question. So Captain Partners, early stage alternative investment firm. Uh, we're raising a, a venture capital fund quarter one of 2021. We invest in sports, entertainment and media. And some of our athletes are LPs. And so what that does is one creates value for the underlying companies because we're investing in uh, analogous sectors that these athletes can add value to through their platform approach. Always talk about leveraging, leveraging these athletes, helping these founders go to market, whatever it may be, influencer strategies, whatever it may be. And then two, um, being able to do, you know, a fellowship with Next Play Capital in, in uh, Silicon Valley in 2019. 2020 february 2020 uh with a former uh nfl player ryan niece and you know son of hall of famer ronnie lot for ryan he's got yeah. a great reputation for his investments in the sports and fitness world exactly so being able to see how he was able to leverage that platform leverage his um connections um his dad was ronnie lot hall of famer for the san francisco 49ers so he was, you know, the man in, in, in Silicon Valley yes. when Silicon Valley was becoming Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. So he had a lot of connections. A lot of people wanted to be around him. Back to my earlier point, leveraging that shield, leveraging your platform while people, uh, while you're relevant, right? Because people want to eat dinner with Randy Light. No, check out this deal. You should invest in it because it just gave us a 13, you know, 14% return, right? So it's one of those things that I wanted to bring them to Captain Partners and the, really the, the vision of what I saw for Captain Partners uh, being able to add value just through my network. 
talk about uh, the network that I, I started uh, really digging up in 2017. And so with with that, uh, those those business experiences have helped, but also it also shows me what I don't want to do, right? It shows me what not to do, where you can go wrong, and where you can mess up. And and I'm not talking about Nestle Capital or Ryan, but just in other walks of life, right? And, and being able to really fine tune this. So I did the Harvard Business uh, Harvard Business School crossover in business program, April of 2019. Was paired up with two HBS mentors. Uh, one is one is a, a private equity associate, and one just started his own company, the New Paper. Uh, digital newspaper. They send five links to your to your phone every every morning about the most current news, and it's unbiased. But those guys really shaped my perspective to really fine tune what I what I do like, what I don't like, based off of their experience. Hey, I want to go into private equity. Uh, why do you want to go to private equity? I tell them why. They say, No, you don't want to go to private equity. I think venture capital might be better for you. And so then you know other opportunities will open up, and I take take control of those like the uh, next play capital. So my, our, our investment philosophy really is just to find great founders. One, I think that's huge. I think founders, uh, not just great as a personality, but great minded. So people like Parthen, who I've seen grow throughout Lasso and the whole, uh, the whole cycle of our friendship, right. And it's to get Lasso to where it is today. Uh, I think I was the first like athlete signed to Lasso. You and now also he represent stay moving so well. Our new slogan, <laughs> just the, the yeah. energy you carry to life. Yeah, yeah I appreciate it. And so and now you were, you were the first athlete right. we ever. Yeah. And so now, you know, they got Champ Bailey. They got, you know, all these other Earl Thomas. I'm seeing Cam Newton jumping into swimming pools with him. I'm seeing, you know, Justin Bieber with it, you know, so just to be able to invest one in great, great founders and, and, and getting the right people on the bus and then, uh, and then really figuring out where they're going with their product. Um, I think is our, our, our best investment philosophy. We I want people who, who, who exude values that we have as captains. You, you brought up a great point about investing in people. Like I think mm -hmm. evaluating a person is more important than evaluating a company. Um, and that can't be, that can't be underestimated. A person who has the right drive and right work ethic and right yeah. mind. Um, you can be okay. Even if you, if you lose together because you know, you made a decision on, so you made a good bet, right? right? And that's right. life. Um, but I do want to talk to you also about the VC world specifically. We know, and, and there's there's many articles, there's much data written about, specifically in Silicon Valley, the difficulties that that Black American founders specifically have in that space. And yeah, they may take you, and also athletes. A lot of times people are looking at athletes as, somebody that can be exploited in an investment deal versus, hey, this is a partner that I need to educate the same way that I educate someone else. Right. I wanted to t ask you about that. First of all, I'm, I'm very happy that you're stepping into this role and saying, because a lot of people get discouraged as minorities and say, you know what, this space doesn't accept people like me and the obstacles are too great, but you're taking that leap and you're taking that step. So kudos for that, first of all. I appreciate. Um, but secondly, just to speak on that and your experience personally with that. Yeah. So when I started Captain Partners, uh, I knew it was paramount for me to reach back. And, and my success would not only be success for myself, but success for so many people that look just like me and who come who come under me, right? And so what that looks like is me being able to put people on my uh investment team put people on, on, on our team period as, as partners, associates, whatever it may be that are people of color that aren't getting jobs at these other VC firms, right? These homogeneous yeah. teams 
in these well-established VC uh, firms, and, and not only uh, minorities, but also women, right? And being able to diversify that as well, because that goes a long way in evaluating companies. Women just see things that men don't and vice versa, yeah, right? Yeah. And then two, um, I realized the, uh, the, the, the need for underrepresented founders in this space, right? So first of all, given athletes access, because I talk to financial advisors, you know, when I'm going through these athletes to, to kind of get their capital to invest. And a lot of them, I, 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 I kind of, yeah, I cringe. It's kind of <laughs> yeah. sad when I get off the phone and obviously I'll never tell the specific athlete that yeah. because they, you know, invested a lot of trust and, and a lot of money in these people, but it's sad, you know, just kind of the education they have and yeah. um, on, on, on what they're actually doing. And they're really managing a lot of, uh, of this person's not only money, but trust and future. Right. And so me being able to give at, athletes access to something besides the S&P 500, right? Yep. Something besides Robin Hood or whatever it may be and nothing against that, but, you know, being able to get high returns also, you can accept this higher risk because you have a higher allocate or higher uh, capital allocation at such a younger age where you can accept a little bit more risk and still be able to uh, uh, make up for it. So given athletes access and, and athletes are usually minorities, right? Especially yep. in my network, a lot of minorities, minorities make up less than 2% of venture capital uh, investors. So one, I'm, I'm helping that percentage, but two, underrepresented founders, uh, Blacks, uh, Latinx, are very, uh, very, uh, I would say, on par with other people as far as being uh, everyday startup founder, everyday uh, uh, entrepreneur. And Kaufman Fellows did this study, actually, that um, diverse founding teams have high, 30% higher returns than all white founding teams, yeah. which is huge. So why not, why not invest in that? Right. So yeah. it's not even like I'm doing this to, yeah. to just, just it's to do it. Business. I'm doing it because it's smart. I mean, yeah. it makes sense. I mean, the math is, the math is mathing at this point. And so that's, that's critical. And so, um, it's a certain responsibility, right. To, to be a, a black man as a venture capital, uh, fund manager and, and, and not a lot of us are out there. And so to be able to, uh, one, serve underrepresented founders and really have a, a, a unbiased eye to every every deck that comes across our email, but also to be able to give back and put other people in position to uh, reap success for themselves, whether that's through our firm or through another firm from the experience they, they got from us. So I think it's cr critical and I, I take that, I, I don't take that lightly, right? I take that responsibility as something that's just as important as returns, right? Yeah. Obviously returns are uh, uh, the priority, but we we want to be inclusive. We want to make sure everybody's uh, represented. So that's great. Yeah, you guys are on the wave of really the athletes becoming investors these days, right? Mm -hmm. But my question for you is: Do you feel that the rise of social media influencers has diminished the value that athletes and entertainment celebrities are able to bring to a deal, um, given the changes in consumer behavior we're seeing because so many people have platforms? Or on the flip side. Does social media actually, because it's such a straightforward formula of what you need to do, uh, enable athletes to build a much larger platform than they would have ever had, enabling them to bring a lot more value to deals? How do you see that affecting the the athlete's perspective and how they approach a business? Right, I think uh, the great social question. media, the social media, yeah, it is a great question. The social media, um, just the way it's streamlined now and the way it's so accessible to everybody, I think athletes have a better opportunity to make a bigger splash. And so our athletes aren't just making splashes through social media, right? They're not just putting up a post, an organic post of them uh, with the product or them, you know, with whatever. They're also, you know, doing, doing appearances, making 
their network accessible to these founders, which is huge, right? If the, the company we invested in, in in September, our first company, his biggest thing was my weakest pipeline is athletes. So just to be able to get access to people who one can be of, of use, right? Because they, they think differently, they see the world differently, but also because of their platform. And so I take Whoop, for example, Kel- Kelvin Beecham, right tackle on the Arizona Cardinals, invested in Whoop. His pitch to Whoop to get into Whoop, who's now a unicorn, he invested, you know, uh, in earlier rounds. But he said, hey, this is a great product. I'm an athlete. I could be a, a great guinea pig. And I also have 53 others in the locker room with me yeah. that it could be a guinea pig. So now Whoop has a, a partnership with NFLPA. So being able to do it um, uh, and, and, and other work, other ways besides social media is also uh, paramount to just our network, right? Because yeah. I tell I tell guys all the time that we're not only just adding value to the company, we're adding value to each other um, and each other, right? Because I could put a business exec, I could put a, a NFL quarterback, I could put uh, an NBA player, and I could also put a high net worth individual in the same room. We all have the same interests, right? So we're not only adding value to this company, but we're adding value amongst each other to build up a cohort of uh, just a rare and rare access to, you know, different things, right. Different opportunities. And I think, you know, I think you, you, you guys both bring up, first of all, part that's a great question, Brendan, your answer was great. I think also, I think it's important for people to understand is one of the ways I look at it is social media is a great way to build new relationships, but to build real relationships, you have to have real relationships, you know? Um, So it's a great way to have that initial trigger, but, you're not going to build depth through social media. I, I don't think that's right. ever going to change. Um, right. But, you know, as a follow-up question that that I have is also the money, right, with athletes. One of the most challenging things that I have with my friends who are in the NFL is their perception of money gets completely messed, fucked up when they're in the league, which is, you know, you're making money over 16 weeks. And if taking that and then understanding how business investing works and how investing works money isn't people don't make money like that you know how do you kind of bridge that challenge as well when they're seeing their they, they invest in your in with you and they're not getting the returns that they're seeing in in their weekly checks in the NFL right and so that's a great question cuz it's not made for every athlete. Captain Partners isn't made for every athlete. Venture investing isn't made for every athlete. And not from a monetary standpoint, but from a standpoint of, you know, discipline, uh, education, right? And yeah. just character, right? So I'm not just going out and, and, and going into the NFLPA portal saying, hey, raising X amount of money, email this email if you want to talk more. I'm going to people in my network, one who I know I trust and who know and trust me, right? So I know their character. I know what they're about. I know how they they live their life and how they handle their portfolio, right? And so I also make it a point every time I pitch an athlete that I do uh, know this can be valuable for is I let them know off the bat, this is a liquid and this is risky. Those are the first two uh, things on on our debt every slide or every time is this is illiquid and this is highly risk, high high risk, right? But you also reap high rewards. And so um, that's a great question because out of 17... Everybody listening can do the math. I can't even do the math in my head, but 600,000 divided by 17, that's how much every game a player makes as a rookie. And it only goes up from there. So you can imagine players who are getting money for the first time in their life seeing a game check after taxes being $20,000 plus. I mean, in a 21-year-old's in a, in a head, it's like, hey, I could buy you know 17 cars, a car every week, right? <laughs> 
And so being able to, one, have enough discipline to realize that I'm, you know, this is a hundred percent injury rate sport. It's a hundred percent contact sport and this won't last long. Right. I can't, I can't, you know, play football with my mind as long as I can with my, or with my body, as long as I can do other things with my mind. So, um, I think the the biggest thing is targeting, targeting the right athletes. Cause the last thing I want is a LP who is, you know, texting me every, every month or once they spend, you know, their, their, yeah. And once they, once they spend their salary and we go on a strike and so they don't have the income in, in, for the you know two months that we're holding out that they thought they would have and they're blowing me up to take their money out or, you know, so um, that goes a long way with just surrounding yourself with great people, like I mentioned earlier, but also building a relationship. It's not just a, a, a lotto ticket. It's not just a, let me get as much money as I can so I can get that 2% management fee. And if we get carried, we yeah. get carried. It's I want to grow together. I want to invest in a $250,000 SPV and, and close on it, show you that I can do this at a great level and attract more people. And and you tell more people that, hey, you know, this guy gave me a IR of 20% or this guy, you know, took my 20000 and made it 120000 That's a whole, you know, 10 games worth of paychecks that I just got uh, by, by giving them one game check, you know. But uh, it, it's just, you know, building, building the brand, building the culture is, is huge. That mentality is so refreshing, man, because I've been in these circles for a long time. And I think just like I say, a lot of industries, the sports industry is an industry of exploitation, first and foremost. And I think it's not a good way even for these agents and financial advisors to build sustainable businesses by making it a hustle. How do I maximize what I'm going to get out of these guys in the short term without thinking beyond and thinking long term, right? And I think just you having that mindset is, is, is needed in this industry. Right. And so I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't seek guys who have that short-term mindset. I, th- I think that's a great way to put it. Right. So guys who are already thinking long-term way before investing, right. They're thinking long-term as in, Hey, I just got this $2 million signing bonus, but mm-hmm. I know I can break my leg like Alex Smith in any moment. I know I could, you know, par- get paralyzed. I know I could, you know, walk away from the game and get cut or whatever it may be. And so this 2 million has to be a 2 million that can be, you know, with compound interest, 2.7 in, in five years, right. Or whatever it may be. And so being able to target those guys and, and, and understand that uh, there's not a lot of education out there for them. So also educate them on that. Like, well, like I said, talking to financial advisors, one, one of the saddest things I did really through, through this whole fundraising process, because they're not as, you know, and it's not, not a knock on financial advisors. A lot of financial advisors don't specialize in venture investing, but, um, it's one of those things where there's more for these athletes and I want to educate them first and foremost. Awesome, man. Well, I know we're, we're coming up on time here. So we like to wrap up all of these interviews with uh, a top five, um, in music and in sports. So we'd love to hear, uh, your most inspiring athletes and, uh, the most inspiring artists. That's hilarious because I was just thinking of like a top five athletes, not even though, I mean, not uh, athletes, artists, not even though I was going to get asked this question, but wow. um, so we're going to go little baby, All future, right. young thug, uh, little Uzi Vert. And then that fifth one is Gunna or young Dolph. And I say this, I know you're like, yo, he didn't say Drake. I think Drake is one of those uh, omnipotent, type of people he's, he's on everybody's list yeah. right so it's not even something i need to mention it's kind of obvious right it's like yeah. playing pickup football i'm the all-time quarterback right i, I play quarterback yeah. on both sides it's 
it's understood, right? So it's not one of those things. So that's my top five. I don't even want to take you know somebody's space to Drake. To Drake's put, on his own. The way I look at it right now is Drake's on his own list, right? And everyone right. else is everyone else is is on another list, right? And so uh, athletes, um, in no particular order, just because that'd be hard to do on on time. But Steph Curry, um, or not Steph Curry, Steph Curry. Uh, LeBron James is, is highly commendable. What he's doing off the court, I think, is the most uh, important thing of his career, right, with the I Promise School and everything he's doing. I have so much respect for that. Um, I'm a big uh, Larry Fitz guy uh, just because Love of Larry. the way – Larry. you never heard a bad thing about Larry and the way yeah. he handles himself off the field and on the field, just world class. Um, and he's, you know, big and investing and really making his money and, and le- money stretch and leveraging his brand. Um, and then let's go. Who else? Who else? Uh, I'm a cam guy. I like cam cam has a bit good business portfolio, good business acumen. Um, he's in lasso. He's a uh, Mashika. Uh, he does all this, um, community work as well with his, uh, foundation. He does the 707 camp. Uh, so those are some of the guys just off the top of my head that, um, I, I respect, you know, Kyrie Irving as well. I like the way Kyrie, uh, Thinks he he's one of those guys that gets labeled as a, a nut case or a head case, whatever you want to call it. But I think he has some really valid points. And when you sit down and really listen to Kyrie, um, he really you know is you know saying stuff that people are coming ar- across later and actually agreeing to, especially Much with like the whole. Yeah, right, you, right. You, you know you gotta you gotta remember a lot of of Cavs fans. Uh, they have a uh, their perception is swayed by what how he broke up our broke up our team by one right right. <laughs> go, go do his thing. So I think their their perspective is a little jaded, um, yeah. and has to be taken with a grain of salt. <laughs> and I actually thought um, with him and Kevin Durant connecting, Kevin Durant spoke out a lot on Kyrie's behalf of just you got to understand the guy, right? Yeah. And yeah. so um, me being able to sit back and because Kyrie was my favorite player at one point, yeah. um, and I kind of you know eased back, but he's still you know an amazing athlete, still an amazing point guard. But uh, just being able to hear him out and just you know. Listen, listen with the uh, open ear. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, man. Well, that was an amazing interview. We've got a lot of gems here that we're going to be able to share with an awesome audience. So thank you so much for your time, Brandon. This has been amazing. No, I appreciate you guys having me. These great questions. Uh, honestly, got me thinking outside the box. It wasn't your cookie cutter podcast interview. So I got some uh, good answers and, and good questions. I love it. Always yeah, part always keeping me on my toes. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we appreciate it, man, and we definitely want you to keep coming back on as as you continue to succeed. We want to we want to be a part of that success and hear about it. No, likewise. And real quick, can you tell me what Pilot Boys means? What, well, what was the what behind the name? Well, it is it is what you are, right, mm-hmm. Captain? The belief that you are the captain of your own destiny in life. Um, to be yourself, be confident in yourself. Our slogan is "Be you, be you is fly." You know, yeah, I like um, it, and I think that that's that's what you represent. That's why we're so happy to have you on our podcast. Nice, love it. I love what you guys are doing. Awesome, thank you, man. No, I appreciate you guys having me. Take care. Fan of our content? Help us continue creating by supporting us on the Pilot Boys Podcast Patreon. Donations start at just one dollar. And there are some cool perks for higher level donations. All right. Now it's time for some news and notes. V, are you ready for this? Let's get it. Cool. First up, the NASDAQ just petitioned the SEC to require more diversity on the boards of companies listed on the NASDAQ. What they're looking for 
is one board member to be a female board member and one to be a member of the LGBTQ community. So what are your thoughts on this fee? Um, I like it. You know, and the reason that I like it is because I think when you understand the power structures of our country, there isn't a lot of diversity at the top currently. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of these decisions and these boards are made up of 70-year-old white men, you know. Um, and the truth is that even for a business standpoint, the best thing is to have a di diversity of viewpoints because the country has a diverse consumer base. Right. So, and I think for change to happen, it does in these situations, it does need to happen at the top. And if the NASDAQ requires some diversity for people um, to be listed on their exchange, it's going to force um, some progress in areas that I think is, is badly needed and badly overdue. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think anytime you push for diversity, it's a good thing, especially diversity of thought. I don't like focusing on diversity based on the physical traits that define us, because I yeah. think that it's a limiting way to look at diversity. I think diversity of thought, diversity of perspective is really it. So um, that's one of my takes. Um, one of the things that I have a problem with are minority focused uh, investment funds, because it's not skin color. It, it is heavily correlated to skin color, but it's actually socioeconomic status that really determines people who are struggling from an opportunity standpoint. So I don't buy the argument of invest in a certain skin color because I think that's inherently racist to only invest in a certain skin color uh, without you know examining the criteria. It's not mission oriented. It's just personal. But when you look at diversity in businesses, however, it is always a good thing when you have diversity of thought because it just makes you more robust in terms of how you can approach and solve problems. I do think it's a little weird to stipulate sexuality. I think that you know it's it's people should be able to do whatever they want, but um, there's very few instances in you know my work where I've ever spoken about the sexuality of any of my employees or any of my yeah, colleagues. Yeah, that's a little weird. That is yeah. a little weird. And but how I mean, do you check it right? In today's day and age, you know, if I diver if I were to identify as a female and if I were to say that I'm uh, bi, how can you prove that? Look, I, I I agree with you, and I think also it it underlines something that we talked about in an earlier show. America, you get what you negotiate and what your power negotiates, and you know you cannot fault um, you know the LBGTQ community for trying to exercise and wield a, a power in a way that their spot at the table is guaranteed. Um, and that's why you see a lot of these situations where they actually have carve-outs is because they know how to work the system and negotiate and guarantee their their seat at the table. Um, which, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a variety of thought on that, on whether it's right or wrong. But that is the system in which we've lived in in a long time. Yeah. I think one of the reasons where I struggle with this is that there was, you know, we, we fundraise for my company. Yeah. So I was speaking with different venture funds and there was one that came across our table and aligned in all values, but they only invest in LGBTQ founders. Yeah. And so it's, it's one of those situations that to me is, is a weird one because if I were to say I was right, which, you know, I didn't cause, uh, I'm pretty straight about um, like I, I'm pretty big on my honesty, right? In terms yeah. of like 
how I portray myself. But in general, I feel that it's hard to set rules in place that are impossible to verify. And I think bisexuality is one of those things that it doesn't mean you have to actually sleep with someone of the same and then opposite gender, right? But it would just indicate that you have the openness to date or, you know, romantically be involved with either gender, which is not something that can be proven because it's thought and it's intent. Same as identifying as a different gender, which again is not proven. So when you have quotas based on things that people can arbitrarily choose what they are, I just think it's a terrible way to set rules because they're not really rules at that point. They're just things that people have an incentive to lie about to be able to have the profit incentive of listing their company on the NASDAQ. Yeah. I mean, that is the difference between sexuality and race, right? One, one, one counter I'll give to the, the race situation is that the reason that there have to be specific minority-focused funds and minority-focused investment vehicles is because for a long time, and it continues to show if you look at the faces in, in Silicon Valley, that they're not granted equal footing and equal opportunity um, and they are discriminated against. So now how we solve this problem, I agree. The system that's in place clearly isn't working because it's not changing the dynamics um, in that space. Well, and you're, it, you're absolutely correct too, because if you invest, if you look at black founders, they actually yield higher returns than than white founders and same with females versus uh, male founders, which would indicate that they're underinvested in. So that's, that's absolutely correct. And the data supports that um, there's a tremendous bias toward white males in terms of venture capital. But for me, the beef is when you solely decide that mm-hmm. you will or won't invest in someone because of their race, I just find that to be racist. Yeah. Yeah. That creates a challenge. Definitely. Yeah. creates. A it's thing. just a special kind of irony when you're claiming that you're trying to fight racism by being racist. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's my take. A- and I have a lot of friends who run minority focused funds, by the way, and yeah. they're seeking to do good in the world. I just intellectually disagree with their premise of how they're approaching that. And that's okay. So long as it's positively impact, the goal of this is to positively impact that community. Right. Right. Um, and so long as that's happening, then it shouldn't ma- it, sh- it shouldn't necessarily matter if of the skin tone of the per- the person you're investing. Hundred percent. Well, and, and if you're running a fund, you can do what you want to do with that money. You raise that money. It's capitalistic society. If you only want to invest in a certain race, that's that's what you can do. That's the whole point of our society. Yeah. And so, me disagreeing with that doesn't mean it's bad or that it's wrong. It's just not the way that I feel is the best way to address the problem. Yeah, it's basically doing the same thing that's being done. Um, in reverse, right? Yeah, and you that's know. and you know, that's the premise of affirmative action too. Yep. Yeah. Well, I wanted, wanted to move on to a topic that's near and dear to your heart, real quick. Partha, the the Forbes under thirty list um, was announced uh, today. Actually, not today, but um, recently. Um, there are a lot of cool names on there. I, I love looking at this list because I like seeing what young minds are coming up with. And I like surrounding yeah. myself with energy that's younger than me yeah. um, because it keeps you in touch with how innovation is happening. So I just wanted to ask you on like the impact of this, the impact of, of what it's had on you and your business and, and why you think it's important for this, this, these people to be recognized every year. Yeah. I think, I think it's honestly a life changing um, recognition because the scope of which you have to be creating impact, right, is is quite large. Now, there's some um, 
there's some, I would say, like uh, difference per per industry in terms of the caliber of the professionals, just because certain industries tend to have more young people in them versus others. Um, But overall, everybody you meet from the Forbes under 30 community is, is brilliant. They're talented, they're sharp, and more than anything, they're passionate about creating really big and positive impact in the world. So I think it's a good thing to highlight young people who are driven that way and young people who are going way above and beyond in their careers to be able to do something that they feel is is right for the world. And so, you know, it's cool to see this list come out every year. Cool to see people highlighted. And I saw that they had announced 6,000 people on this list over the last 10 years since it started. And that in itself is a pretty exciting milestone for, for Forbes. So um, good on them for taking the opportunity to highlight young people. And I can say for me, it was a very pivotal moment in my entrepreneurship career because it was the first major uh, external piece of, of, well, I'll say the third major external piece of validation in my life. But it's one of those that um, I've been able to lean on for you know much of my 20s and it's given me a lot of credibility. So I can't, I can't even imagine for all of these people who are making the list for the first time, um, the excitement and the energy. Yep. And you underscored a great point here, which I think a lot of young people need to hear. A lot of people do get recognized for awards, but they don't leverage that and capitalize on what that is properly. And I think, like you said, utilizing that as a vehicle to to help continue your growth and continue to grow your network is the most valuable, is even more valuable than the recognition itself. Right. And one thing I appreciate about Forbes is a lot of awards you can kind of campaign for. Yeah. Um, Forbes in general, I've seen that the people who campaign usually have the toughest time getting on the list. Um, but the people who just genuinely focus on what they're passionate about end up on there. And it may, might not be early, right? It might be a little later down their career path, but they'll they'll end up with with their focus. And you know, Forbes and especially Randall Lane, their editor, who you know unfortunately got doxxed by Kanye earlier this year. Um, Randall's a good guy, and and he's got a good read on people and the whole yeah. community of Forbes, the the editing staff, the writing staff, they're all genuinely kind people who kind of resonate, they're passionate about what they do. Yeah, exactly, and, and they're able to read people, you know, pretty well. So um, I'm a big fan every time they do the list, and they do this conference every year too, where you know all the all the crew goes, and it's it's just a genuine like high caliber room. That's, that's, that's awesome. I really love their content. I've been a big fan of Forbes for most of my life, actually. So yeah, me too. uh, It's, it's, it's exciting to see. Talking about content. We were texting about this this weekend. There was some drama with Dave Chappelle and Netflix and uh, the long story short is that the Chappelle show went up on Netflix as it did many other streaming platforms. Netflix took it down because Dave Chappelle called them and said he didn't, it didn't make him feel good that it was up there. Um, you know, business-wise, very smart move from Netflix because they're going to have his loyalty for years to come. And, you know, that's a significant revenue stream, I, I, I would guess, for them in terms of keeping viewers and subscribers on their platform. Um, but I think there's another perspective to it, too, from the standpoint of it, it's a similar analogy to artists who sign away their masters then later in their career wanting their masters back. Can you expand on that a little bit, V? Yeah, I mean... You have a responsibility when you sign a contract as talent to make sure that that contract, when you sign it, fits what your goals are 
and then also to hire an, an attorney. This is why it's so important to have lawyers. A lot of people give lawyers a bad name, but if you hire a good lawyer, you express to them what you want in terms of creative control and, and, and rights. And once that contract is signed by both ends, both, both sides are obligated to meet whatever stipulations are in that contract. In the music industry, you have a lot of artists who s willingly sign away their masters, who later on realize the value of what those masters are and then gain them back. And then you also have record execs who won't budge on a record deal without getting control of the masters because that's where the real money is at. In this situation, I think you had a situation where Dave Chappelle, when he signed up for this show, I don't think him or Comedy Central really got a grasp of how big this thing was going to get and how much pressure was going to mount on both Comedy Central and Dave Chappelle to deliver a product. So I think through time, whatever was in the contract, Dave wanted more creative liberty, probably wanted more time to create, um, which Comedy Central was like, look, we have to have a season out. This is the schedule. It's got to fit this schedule. And this is, we don't have any room to budge. And I think both sides could have could have solved this problem by coming to the table and working together, which I think yeah. fails to happen in across industries. And this is a reflection. Now you have bad blood that's going to last a lifetime on both sides. Yeah. And clearly it's, it's very personal. It's not, you know, very much related to the contracts. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really, really admire Dave Chappelle for his commentary and his perspective. And he's also, you know, a fellow Ohioan. So we love him. Um, but it's it's definitely interesting. I would love to dig deeper and actually read the contracts, have been in the room and know what's going on. So I, I could actually comment better. Um, but I think there's there's a clear two sides to this thing. And, you know, like most of the issues we cover here, it's it's all about understanding that both folks have reasons to believe they're right and both folks have things that they're incorrect on. And that's important in, in any situation to acknowledge the, you know, upside and the downside of both arguments. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes from one of my mentors, who's actually an entertainment attorney, is that you don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate. Um, and I think that that's something that people need to understand in business. Like, I'm not mad at Dave Chappelle at all. And I don't think anyone should be for exercising his power to leverage what he wants, right? And what makes him feel good. And I don't think there's anything anything wrong with that within the context of business, because that's how business operates. And I'm, I think you'd probably be in agreement there. hundred percent. And I mean, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of times where you want to do things for people, but you just can't, right? Because yep. it, it doesn't make any sense. And, yep. you know, whether there's feelings or not, a lot of the time when you make the decision that's best for the business, it can create feelings on the other side if people take things personally. And uh, it just takes a tremendous amount of detachment from money to have an understanding as to how to make business decisions without that personal involvement. And it's, I think it's something many people strive for. I don't know. I don't know anyone who's reached that a hundred percent, but uh, I know people who are close. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Ooh, moving forward into COVID uh, it's been, it's been, you know, even longer. We're in another shutdown here in Los Angeles. Um, lot of rent payments going on to credit cards, a lot of uh, people really struggling and no relief from lawmakers or from Congress who, 
you know, after very happily taking your money for the course of the election, uh, don't really have any desire to do anything for the people. Yeah, we have no idea what's going on in government right now. So, I mean, the reality is that these people are paid by taxpayer money. So their salaries are funded by the people who are out of work right now. And the the economy is 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 needs consumption um to continue to operate. So they're not just doing a disservice like it's not just a handout. This is actually what the system needs to continue to move and to continue to grind. And the fact that these people only care again about being elected um and not about passing a relief bill, you can nominate and get a Supreme Court justice in record time, but you can't pass and negotiate a relief bill yeah. that's bipartisan that's going to help people who now are like to do I think they don't even have the ability to put into context the type of stress that that puts on a human being. Yep. They have to put their rent on a credit card that charges them 20, 30% interest. What that actually is doing to the psyche of the citizens that they're paid for by. Yeah. And to your point, you know, it's the credit card companies absorbing a lot of those costs for giving debt on people, reducing the payoff obligation and trying to bend and help people. But um, you know, I honestly, it, it's times like this where I wonder, wouldn't it be nice if we could just stop paying the Congress Congress folk until they figure stuff out? Yes, that would be. Uh, that's the thing that I've, I think we've <laughs> talked about this before. But like, literally, you, if you're not living up to the standards that the citizens set for you, then yes, you don't get your paycheck every two weeks. Your benefits get cut, just like all these people are getting cut. Because if they can't survive, and you're you're preventing them from being able, to, why should you live a comfortable life? Yeah, seriously, seriously. Yeah. Um, you know, during the quarantine, uh, we have seen many, many people's kids shift to studying at home, studying online. Um, you sent me an NPR article earlier, V, that showed that in general, uh, students are continuing to learn and, and grow at roughly the same pace on the reading side of things. Math um, has slowed down from a growth standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, this study only covered 75% uh, of uh, yeah. students in terms of its representative sample. So they even acknowledged they did not cover most of the students who don't have access to you know remote yeah. work and zoom classrooms which is the people we should be concerned about yeah yeah and it, and it goes to show you again what a big problem is with our society is that these standardized tests do measure cognitive ability right but they're not measuring the mental impact that staying at home, not engaging in sports, not engaging with your fellow students and your social circles is potentially having on these kids. It's that part of it can't be measured either. And like you said, the, the data is incomplete because the people that we need to care about are the people who now, as a result of not being able to go in school, have access, don't really have access to anything. Like the the deterioration in those folks is what we really need to care about, right? Yeah. Hundred percent. I mean, I think that's that's the side of things that gets forgotten really quickly, right? Yeah. In terms of how a lot of our policy is made, is there's a lot of people who don't have the family support structure or the you know economic support structure or the societal or communal support structure 
of a large portion of today's population. Mm -hmm. You know, if 55% of people have really great means that they're coming from, that's still almost half your country that isn't. And it doesn't matter if the majority of people are doing well, like data from the study shows. And uh, this is exactly the type of study that gets quoted by a politician to say, hey, education has been totally fine. Yeah. Well, no, it hasn't because we don't know what's happening to the people who we're actually worried about. We know that for everybody with resources, it was fine, as we may yeah. have guessed. But for the people without resources, that's really what we're worried about as a society because we want everyone to have the same opportunity to be able to succeed. Yep. Yep. I think that's 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 a great point. Hopefully, you know, we're we're able to start measuring these things in a way that actually benefits us and helps fix these problems versus just saying, hey, our test scores are fine. Like that can't be what you're going into this situation to try to find out. You're supposed to disprove, not try to prove what you're trying to trying to show. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's moving on from that. Um Another troubling thing that's happening that we've talked about a lot is another troubling story in the new from the news front, right? Like um, the rise of this this new channel Newsmax, who essentially saw an opportunity. Um, you know, Fox News pissed off Donald Trump when they certified the election, like every other state, and the election itself did was verify and certify that Joe Biden won the election fairly and squarely. Donald Trump got pissed off and Newsmax kind of saw an opportunity and jumped in. They have not certified the election and kind of been riding the not the Donald Trump um, bandwagon to ratings and, and success. Um, and again, you know, I don't know if it's right or wrong. There's been an historic obligation that we say news agencies have to report objectively and fairly that I think has been flipped upside down extremes on uh, payoff. And now Newsmax is becoming a credible news agency just by writing this theory. That's not even proven. I'll give you the dose of optimism that I see with Newsmax's rise as more and more news sources have come up and it, I don't care where on the political spectrum they are. But having an incredibly diverse set of news sources and an abundance of sources that are high quality in terms of their user experience and ability to learn from them or get information from them, it's an extremely exciting situation because I think, you know, this is unsubstantiated, but I think that due to many, many, many sources, the average person, whether they're on social or whatever, is being exposed to many, many more news sites than they were previously, right? And so what we're going to end up with as we get more and more news sites and people getting their sources through more algorithmic feeds that are not like you're not only getting your news from Fox News. I doubt many people in the new generation go to foxnews.com or cnn.com to get their news, right? But they're getting it from the Apple News app or the Google app that's feeding them every single day. When you have so many different sources that algorithms pull from, you get a very nice distribution in terms of the amount that you're going to receive. And so I think this, this very volatile and like rapidly growing landscape of new media is one of the best things that could be happening to our country because we're going to get the benefit of sample size where over time, the average American has a more complete view of every circumstance by seeing multiple sides as opposed to just sticking on one side. 
Yeah, and, and I would agree with you if if that's what I was actually seeing, right? I feel like a lot of these social media platforms stoke the fires in their algorithms by feeding people who don't want certain content the content that they don't want to see as well, right? Like, for example, I don't want to hear anything from Newsmax, but I see it on my feed on Twitter all the time. And I think there's also a secondary part of this, which is what is the obligation of the person that's leading our country? A big part of the reason Newsmax has gotten popular is because Donald Trump is constantly retweeting them and posting stories from them. And he has this kind of, everyone who kind of looks at Donald Trump and knows who he is, knows that kind of, he never expected to win that first election. His goal was to leverage whatever he gained from his stance to create a new news media agency. And it'll be interesting to see where this partnership with him and Newsmax kind of goes down the line, you know? Yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective. I think the thing that I like about it is that, you know, I don't get my news so much from like a Instagram feed, right? I get it more off of Twitter for the most part. And I'm looking at what's trending. So that's been relatively distributed from, you know, the sides that I get news from. And at the same time, I really, really appreciate being able to see, you know, in writing on a site, what some portion of the country believes, you know, and yeah. yeah. It's important to know what people are thinking and to know, I mean, look, you need to know like how this country operates and how some of the people are thinking people that you're not in line with thinking wise, you have to combat them somehow. Right. So knowing how they're thinking helps you in, in kind of winning that battle too. So I do agree with you there. And I'll say this, I think I was in the, the crop of people that took a lot of, you know, news media I disagreed with probably more personally than I needed to. Yeah. But these days I'm starting to really appreciate it more as like an empathy machine where I can look at it and rather than getting triggered, I can read these headlines and with curiosity really say, okay, so there's a portion of our country that sees the world this way. How can I learn from that? How can I grow from that? And how can I understand and communicate with people differently? Because yeah. I know some portion of people are like this, right? Um, yeah. But that yeah. that's what I'm appreciating about it. Yeah, I'm just not a fan of, of, of slanted media generally, news media generally, because we see the incredible impact um, that it has. And I'm a big, I'm still a big fan. I go to NPR to read all my news because yeah. they will give you the counter, right? They'll say, hey, this is the data, this is the headline, but here's the data that disagrees with this. And I think objectivity is very important to feed our citizens because what we don't want to have is lies and propaganda become mainstream, right? right? You want your citizens to be able to properly evaluate. So if that part of it can be fixed, I'm in complete agreement with you. And that goes back to freedom of speech. We want to hear a diversity of viewpoints. Right. Um, My hope is that through many, many viewpoints, we don't have so much group thing around one or two central ideas, but it starts to become a more, you know, homogenized worldview across the population. So we'll see. Yep. Let's, let's move on to some music news. Um, Big accomplishment for our friend uh, Reza and and his, his artist over a rock nation, Snow Allegro. We got to talk to him a little bit about um, what it meant for him because snow and him are both persian of persian descent um she won the soul train music award for best new artist 
a um, huge accomplishment for her individually, first and foremost. She is incredibly talented. If you want to listen to good music, go check her music out. But secondly, this is a huge win for that community um, and an industry that they're not necessarily the most represented in. And that's what we talked about with, yeah. with Reza. It's like a, it's a huge deal for that community, for an artist to be recognized in this industry and for him to play a part in helping helping her get there. Absolutely. I think it's it's really exciting whenever you see your friends win. I would be remiss if I didn't also mention uh, the homie Nevin who got nominated for his work on the Eurovision soundtrack. Um, an Indian descent producer, uh, also from Ohio. Yep. Uh, but it's, just, it's nice to see people winning, you know? And unfortunately, yeah. uh, the big snub was The Weeknd, who it seems got into some beef with the Grammys because they asked him to perform at the Grammys. And they said, if you perform here, you can't perform at the Super Bowl, even though they were a week apart and he chose the Super Bowl. And, uh, there's, there's kind of rumor that, um, that is the reason he wasn't nominated for anything, uh, which would be a, a real bummer. Cause I thought his album was one of the best ones of the year. Yeah. I think the Grammys have a real problem on their hand. They've got so much controversy. We don't need to dig into all the details, but they're not an accurate represent. There's a lot of corruption um, in who gets nominated, who wins awards. There are race issues. Um, there, there are a lot of discrimination issues, even in terms of how they've categorized things, um, people getting snubbed. I think Justin Bieber brought up a good point of how they labeled his album a pop album, and he very yeah. intentionally made it an R&B rhythmic album. Um, yeah. and, and, and so this is undermining something that I think the value of something, and Drake's talked about this at length too, of I think artists really need to create a new award show that represents um, them and what they value is 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 what should be awarded and what should be recognized yeah. versus this this committee and group of people who are, are abstract and dated and don't fully understand and have a touch of what's important and what's valuable now. Well, that, that's society. what you get when you get a lot of, uh, I would say like more highbrow musical thinkers is yeah. their choices are going to be very far deviating from what most people feel. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, that's not great for an award show that is supposed to be representative of an industry. No, not at all. Not at all. That, that, so. I think that that's 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 a great point, and hopefully we'll see things get improved. The good thing is when there's noise around it and there is controversy, hopefully there's conversation and we see something better moving forward. Yeah, and and that's what we can hope for. But let's 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 move on from music to sports. Like uh, this one hit me hard. I actually cried um, when Diego Maradona um, passed away for a very specific reason. I'm a big soccer fan. And Diego Maradona is the reason that I became a soccer fan. Um, quite frankly, I, I've watched videos of him in the 1986 World Cup. And if you're a soccer fan and you want to just witness just amazing talent, go watch that 1986 World Cup. He single-handedly pretty much won Argentina <laughs> that World Cup as an individual player. And he's very comparable to what we see with Messi now. But more than anything, I think the Diego Maradona story is very touching because regardless, even in P there are statues of him in India, there are statues of him in Africa because he was one of us. He was a regular human being who had his heart on his sleeve, but was very public in who he was 
acknowledged his mistakes, owned his mistakes, and lived his life authentically. And I think there's something special about how we related to someone like that and why I think this one hits so many people so hard. Yeah, 100%. You know, I, I really don't have anything else to add. That was a, that was a great summary. <laughs> I know he's a little, he's a little, he's a little young for you, but, uh, yeah, definitely not my generation. So I was, I was a little out of the loop on this one, but, um, I've been doing my research a little bit. Yep. Yep. Well, let's, let's talk about an amazing feat here. Like what Tyreek Hill did and Patrick Mahomes did, like, it was like watching a video game, like 13 <laughs> catches, but those 200. are two video game players too. Yes. Unbelievable. Yes unbelievable and it also underscores like the fact that tampa bay didn't make any adjustments yeah uh, to what was going on just underscores there's a there's a dumpster fire going on there um it seems like they're they're disconnected and hopefully they get it right they're they're 12 games into kind of rebuilding their entire program but it underscores kind of a point of we're seeing a trouble in new england we're seeing trouble in tampa bay you know, Belichick and Belichick and them are, and Brady are separated now. Maybe they need each other. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's like a, a definite yes. I mean, two people who work really well together being separated, they're never going to do as well without the other. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think as expected, I'm not I'm not puzzled by this at all. It was, yeah. you know, I didn't expect Tom Brady to move to Tampa and immediately win a Super Bowl, nor did I expect the Patriots to immediately win a Super Bowl with their, you know, 17, I think here starting quarterback yeah. leaving. Yeah. So that's just how it goes. It's, it's growing pains. Um, yeah. Moving that forward. I, one thing I was excited about was watching the Nate Robinson, Jake Paul boxing match over the weekend. Uh, of course, Mike Tyson, Roy Jones Jr. Leading, uh, leading the card, but man, I was impressed by Jake Paul. He knocked the shit out of Nate Robinson. Yeah, and I think um, you know, Jake Paul is a fighter. He's a trained fighter. Yeah. Um, and there's yeah, clear it, difference here. Yeah, <laughs> and it showcased yeah. it showcased the difference. And what I think, you know, I'm argue with a lot of people. Boxing to me is by far the hardest sport. And then ESPN actually ran a poll and study by which that was confirmed. Mm-hmm. It is such a difficult sport. And I think all the memes are funny, everything's funny. But and Nate Robinson is one of the the best athletes we've ever seen. He 100%. could have made it to the NFL or the NBA. He stepped into this boxing ring and was fully exposed. But I but do it's, think it's technique to your point. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, we have to give him the credit of, of getting in the ring itself. I wouldn't have gotten in a ring with Jake Paul and fought him with no, no formal training. And no and way, have, you know, we have to give him credit for taking that chance. He said it was like fighting an octopus in there. Um, <laughs> But I think that the thing that stood out the most about the fight was Snoop Dogg. You know, he was so entertaining as a commentator. Um, and I think somebody needs to give him a job. He said that his price is three years, $15 million. And I think that's a fair deal. What, do you, what were your thoughts on, on Snoop? I like Snoop, man. I So I missed the commentary on this one because I, I had music playing when I was watching it. But yeah. uh, Snoop is is just this a genuine like stand-up guy like i would love to see him just do the whole show business thing the way that we've seen like kevin hart really make it a thing the way we've seen the rock you know really yeah. succeed i think Snoop Dogg could be one of those types of of cultural figures he has the love from yeah. 
everybody. Yeah, he's a he's a national treasure, and it's going to be you know we have to appreciate him for what he is. Last yeah. t- last thing we're going to talk about, which is another thing that's close to me, is uh, Jim Jackson um, getting getting put into the Naismith uh, Hall of Fame. He's actually from Toledo, Ohio, um, which is where I'm from originally, and there are two basketball players, him and Dennis Hobson, from this area. But Jim Jim Jackson really claims this area does a lot of work, continues to do work. I got to meet him when I was a kid, go to his basketball camp. Um, it's just a big win, again, for the state of Ohio, Ohio State basketball, because yeah. he's probably the biggest name player that's ever played in our at our program as well. So I just wanted to to give him a shout out and give Toledo, Ohio a shout out uh, before we before we get out of here. Uh, and, th- and that's all we have for news and news and notes today. We, we thank you guys again for tuning in. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. That's all we have for today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thank you to our guests, Brandon Chubb and Zach Smith. Always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on up. We don't fly, boys, we get up. So go out, face, 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 face,